welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts off the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout hits, legendary classics, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films may come up when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Now, in 2019, this would have been the 101st birthday of Ingmar Bergman. And so to honor this great director, the Directors Club had embarked on a project. We're calling the Bergman 101 to watch and talk about and consider every single Ingmar Bergman effort that had a theatrical release. Welcome, everyone. I'm Brad. And I'm Al. And I'm what? <laughs> and joining us for whatever you can define who us is in part two of our three-part look at his films, uh, we are joined with Peter Richards, our patriot at the Chicago Film Discussion Group, and he's uh, been on several um, Directors Club episodes in the past, including an epic one on John Ford, and he's joined. Uh, he also joined us on part one. Welcome, Peter. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm fairly certain of who I am today, but we'll see. We'll over fix the course that of the <laughs> by the end of this. <laughs> and that uh, sense of confusion is one of the many, many uh, aspects that are coming in from the second part of Bergman's career that we're talking about. Uh, our episode one started from his first movie, Crisis, and led up until Smiles of a Summer Night. One thing about this period in Bergman's uh, career is, and I think it'll be exciting for everyone on this show, is that by the end of it, I think we'll be able to affirm or deny the existence of God. So stick around. <laughs> we'll let you know at the end. Yes. Uh, spoiler alert. That's, that's yeah. right. We're, yes, we are, we are aiming high here. We will also give you the elevator pitch for Persona. Your, your, your faith will either be affirmed or destroyed at the end of this episode. All based on... <laughs> That'll be exciting for everyone. <laughs> a very special episode of the Director's Club. <laughs> We're being a little silly about it, but it's required kind of to alleviate uh, the heaviness of this period of Ingmar Bergman, because whereas we started part one with a, a series of melodramas that built in uh, creativity and innovation till finally I think we had some all-out fantastic films with Sawdust and Tinsel and Smiles of a Summer Night. We're going to start here right off the top in what I think most people consider uh, Bergman's most profound and important period. This is the period where Ingmar Bergman went from being one of Sweden's great exports to possibly one of the two or three most important filmmakers uh, of the 50s and 60s. Bergman's films reach such a level in this period that I, I found myself really curious about the films that we haven't heard of, because this project is covering every Bergman films from the classics to the obscurities. And it seems like when we haven't heard of a film in this particular period, it's because it's kind of a palate cleanser. It's not that they're bad, but there's often a good reason 
that we haven't heard about them because he's stretching some creative muscles, but they'll really contrast to the brilliance that's going to be before and after it. One interesting thing about this period is Bergman is definitely a director who has pet themes. And what makes this period of his career great is he doesn't abandon those themes, but he explores them in new ways, seemingly with each title. And that's really something that that is that allows you like different ways to consider his themes, the way he presents them, any number of things. You're really right about the themes, because I think here more than in part one, we're going to see that almost all of these films has a Bergman surrogate where uh, one or more characters are going to be representative not just of their place in the drama, but of Bergman's deepest beliefs and fears and passions. And that's going to tie into what's going to be the kind of overarching concern among most of these films, which is the existence, non-existence of God, the idea of faith, and how all that intertwines with other aspects of life in general. Yeah, and the first film we're going to talk about really gets right to it. (laughs) Uh, You may have heard of it. It's The Seventh Seal, released in 1957. Returning from the Crusades, a knight and his squire return to their home to find the countryside overrun with the Black Plague. The knight encounters death himself and challenges the specter to a game of chess with his very life as the stakes. They cross paths with a troop of traveling actors, including a husband, wife, and child who seem to embody life even with death all around them. When I was in high school and started to really expand my love of films and want to uh, see the kinds of films that weren't readily accessible in the theater... The first foreign film I ever sought out ended up being The Seventh Seal, and I think it has become very much a touchstone, maybe along with uh, Seven Samurai, as a introduction to world cinema, as a way to push further than so many more conventional cinematic experiences would allow. I don't think I was able to fully appreciate the movie back in high school and I've revisited it over the years and any number of times. And each time it gets better and better each time I get more and more from it because it both tackles an issue that really had never been tackled as seriously and comprehensively prior to this film's release, which are these deep issues of faith and religion not just dealt with in a plot formulation or 
with a simple answer, but to the extent that a work of literature might. It goes to the heart of the matter, but it doesn't forget to be entertaining. Uh, one of the things I realized more on my most recent watch of the film is just what a wicked sense of humor it has. It has tough scenes, but it's not a dour film. It, it, it contains a lot of moods. None of us were around in 1957, obviously, but watching some of the extras on the Criterion disc of this, it was amazing how many of the talking heads there said that this, seeing the Seven Seal, was akin to something you remember where you were when it happened. Like, it literally changed lives. So in context of the time, I think that hit even harder from, from what we hear, folks who went on to be film scholars and everything, inspired by this film. And I, I totally agree, Brad. It's really something that is funny, is thoughtful, is deep. Tough to do all those things in 90 minutes, but this film does it. I think to your point, Peter, I would have loved to go and get into a time machine and to be able to witness this movie completely fresh. And part of the reason is because this movie is completely fresh there has never been a movie that's doing what this film is doing much less this way um i like uh, many people in the culture have been familiar with the concept of death going out playing chess with the knight i had viewed those scenes before i had a chance to view the full movie like that was like a 10-year difference but when i saw the movie the first time i was quite impressed by how it drew out it wasn't just that was what I was thought was the climax, but instead it's which, by the way, is one of the best openings in any movie ever of just how well that landscape, the shoreline and the, when death makes his approach, how much does it, there is no comparison to any other film in that particular depiction. <laughs> it, it's not an overstatement to say that that's one of the most famous images in cinema history. Right. Well, I mean, you even have the Bill and Ted Bogus Journey movie that, <laughs> yeah. that, that takes the image and expands it into a whole subplot with the assumption that the audience for Bill and Ted would have some context for the image even though they might not have seen the film, it's just become one of those ubiquitous images that's uh, beyond the film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's a universal feeling that that image so strikes the heart of. Like, everyone understands that it's a heavy subject, but everyone understands that death comes for everybody. And the idea that you are fighting against it with all your wits in a game of chess is just so universal there's a reason it's become ubiquitous and that it, it's true at a, such a basic level that everyone can relate to it. Mm -hmm. it it creates a really strange kind of suspense because it presents the idea that if you're going to challenge death to a game of chess that there's a possibility you might win and the film is very strict and rightly so about the fact that nobody can win this game. Death will always win. So the question becomes, why do you play the game? What does What is the significance of the moves you make? And so 
the film is expert at at working that in at the on the level of these characters, but also forcing us as an audience to ask those questions about life itself. What is the meaning of these things we do throughout life, which can be uh, analogous to these chess moves? And I think that's what makes the movie is its most triumphant point, because the film from beginning to end is a perfectly realized moral fable. But... An adult's perspective on a moral fable. <laughs> like, the, to the extent that I can find any sort of equivalent, that I would be, it would be um, Charles Lawton's film, The Night of the Hunter, hmm. which uh, was also about a situation uh, that was dire, but then used it f- and had a quality of transcending it to be on these ideas of religion and, and, also, and community and what people value. But honestly, even that is more earthy than the kind of concepts that this film is doing and this film is presenting because each character is effective in terms of us wanting us to follow and see what happens to them but also a representation of a certain concept like an ideal that uh of how to live and what i think is amazing about this film is how it presents through its three main characters three different viewpoints on dealing with death and religion. You have Max von Sydow's knight who is seeking answers. He is always struggling with the idea of what does it mean to be alive and what does it mean to no longer be alive. And He's seeking answers through religion. He's seeking answers through his confrontations with death itself. But I think the point of that character is he's always seeking. Then you have Bjornstrand's squire, who is very much a cynic. I think we can read he probably doesn't believe there's anything. And as a result, his focus is on life itself is on the pleasures and the morality of just living life as a human being. Also, being very cynical, he's the one that provides kind of a running commentary on what all the other characters are thinking and doing and provides the film with a lot of its humor, which makes sense uh, for Gunnar Bjornstrand because he was the main comedic guy in Bergman in a lot of the earlier films. It's a great combination of taking an allegorical story, one of the most purest allegorical stories put on film, but imbuing it with a hell of a lot of wit to these real archetype kind of elements. And the third archetype is uh, the character Joff, played by Nils Poppy. He is a family man. He's an actor very much an innocent. He's not somebody who really questions his faith very much because he sees these visions. So as a result, he's more of a true believer, not haunted by the prospect of death, but more wanting to embrace life just in a, in, a, in a more innocent way than the, the cynical squire would. And significantly, he and his wife, played by B.B. Uh, Anderson, are actors. They're mm-hmm. performers. And in other words, they're artists. 
And I think Bergman's going to, uh, when we talk about the end of the film, I think that's really going to be to the extent we have an escape from the heavy themes of this film and a lot of the very dark images we see is that art is the way, only escape we have, essentially. But it's interesting because the belief you're talking about, Brad, is that character is protected in many ways by Bjornstrand's cynic, mm-hmm. both physically and in other ways as well. Um, so I like that, that those two in concert kind of give you a method of existing where it's really von Sydow's knight who is suffering and and having the crisis of faith the other thing they do is kind of create a meta commentary on the film from within so while we're watching the knight's actual encounters with death we have a death mask that the theater troupe uses and when they're done with it they they place this skull mask right by uh their uh, traveling home and so we have these kind of nice scenes of just picnics and and being with the family and there's this death mask just off to the side against these three archetypes you have the ultimate conceptual thing that people face but are naturally reluctant to embrace the figure of death himself which is a spectacularly unique at least presented on film just one thing that I, I'm really taken by was when uh, the the knight is just continually asking death, and death does not know. He doesn't know anything. He just does what he does. Also, just how he manifests himself here and there is put in a disguise or is in a form that the knight doesn't recognize. And it can be really interesting to look at this in terms of who sees death, who approaches and confronts it, and how you can still be fooled even if you're looking for him or are aware of him. Well, and that's the question of belief, right? What does belief get you? And I I think just to go back, kind of what I take from the film is that the way to exist in life is kind of like through the protection of cynicism and the protection of just enjoying the daily aspects of life. Like don't look for something bigger that isn't necessarily there and let that torture you try to enjoy the days you have. And it's represented here by the acting troupe we talked about. And there's a a scene where uh, they share a bowl of milk and some strawberries with Von Saito's night. And that's really like a triggers a memory for him of being happy. And I think that the film really builds off that feeling in terms of what I take from it, at least, in that the, your, here's your escape. Try to remember that morning when you had the strawberries and milk. And questing for faith or looking for a higher power is, is just going to leave you empty in the end. And the context of this is autobiographical because Bergman, as the son of a minister, was raised in a very strict religious household and his adulthood has very much been this path that the knight took of trying to struggle with these beliefs and and his doubts. And as the films go on, we're going to see his doubts become more and more profound to the point where he's really going to be coming from a more atheist point of view. This is kind of a first step along that, because instead of embracing the knight's quest for answers, 
the knight asks himself, what is one meaningful thing that I could do as a result of this chess game? And he discovers that by buying a little time, he might not be able to save himself or everyone he loves, but he can give the actors, representing the innocents, kind of a a chance to have more time and get away from death for now. I really like the comparison of Bergman to the night you made, Brad, because I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Bergman was traumatized as a child, in part because of the role, the strictness, Lutheran upbringing of his father. And what we're going to see a lot of these films deal with is the trauma that that left him with and him working through where he is as an adult coming from that background. One of the most interesting things about Bergman is that even if we're dealing with a film like The Seventh Seal, like it's so personal to him and it's so deeply felt, that's going to continue throughout uh, the films we talk about today. But you really don't, I think, initially come to The Seventh Seal thinking that that's what it is, but it it really is a personal story for him. Mm, well, if you know more of his personal story, you may get an extra appreciation of how confrontational this film is towards organized religion. This is very, very immolating on the concept of what religious behavior was like in that time period. Is there a bigger indictment upon people traumatizing themselves for an obscure concept more than uh, the people flagellating themselves walking down the town square? In a film that's filled with tremendous images the sequence you're talking about al really is the standout for me it was reminiscent in its power of the opening sequence of sawdust and tinsel that we talked about last time Mm. um and also features the same actor from that sequence uh anders ek um and really what you have is a parade of people who are attempting to atone for their perceived sin that the they view as God uh, taking them out with the plague. Essentially, they believe they've sinned, God has sent the plague, and they're going to try to punish themselves to escape that fate. People whipping themselves, self-flagellation, eventually leading up to the burning of a quote-unquote witch at the stake, all in the name of trying to get in God's good graces. And Bergman doesn't shy away from the horror of these images. They, they look amazing, but they are horrible in what they depict. Yeah, this film is confrontational, and it's going to challenge your belief, and you might come out at a different place that you went in. Right. It's Well, it's fascinating how that is the most horrific imagery, the imagery that provides the most, like, physical revulsion and anxious sensations are going to be these scenes of the religious behavior behaving at that time. Meanwhile, the idea of death itself has been humanized. What? A fascinating thing for the one of the final images to literally have the deaths of several characters be a dance, and the feelings that it evokes definitely not the ones of the of the burning at the stake, to be sure. Right, because it's natural. It's something that comes to everybody, and so the fact that death exists is not something that Bergman is railing against. But what he is railing against is the hypocrisy of organized religion. There's a character they meet who uh, is a uh, not quite a priest, but somebody who works in the church, and he's kind of a nasty 
fellow who tortures the the Yoff character a bit and gets into a confrontation with the squire who ends up uh, slashing his face because he views him as the kind of person that caused them to waste their lives in the Crusades in the first place. So yeah, between that and the witch burning, the view of organized religion could not be more hostile, whereas the view of kind of just what is life is handled in a far more philosophical way. Yeah, I think this movie is just gonna uh, kind of a goldmine in how it gives humanity towards philosophical concepts that uh, when when the witch gets burned it feels exactly right upon how the knight reacts to things how the squire reacts to things how the artist reacts to things when they're put into that situation and i feel for those guys both as human beings and as the concepts they're meant they're meant to represent yeah this is what happens when a cynic fa- uh, when a cynic faces it it does this really really well Sometimes it becomes a little more direct and on the nose, but I don't think that's something you can expressly fault for something that is trying from the very start to be to have this fable type structure. Right, there's there's no effort at realism, but telling its story through symbols. And honestly, like I think no character embodies just the pure symbolic power on an iconographic level more than Max von Sydow's appearance in this movie. It's one of the nicer miracles in this film that it's a concept of a guy who thinks he can beat death, and when you look at Max von Sydow, you think he's got a shot. <laughs> he seems to me like he's emerges like some T-1000 out of a religious icon painting himself because he's so tall, so angular, and has such a huge presence. And there's a just, there's a great moment uh, about a third of the way through where he like takes his fist in the foreground and says, I am Antonius Block. And his sense that he is going to find a principle that will both announce for meaning and be able to do battle with everything that stands in his way is so incredibly vibrant in this film. Max von Sydow would end up becoming Bergman's most known and acclaimed leading man, but we did an entire podcast before he even shows up. This is Mm -hmm. the first... Bergman movie with Von Sydow. He leaves an impression. Yes. And as you watch this film, keep in mind that Max Von Sydow, when he made this movie, was in his mid-20s, which does not seem possible when you look at the man. Like, Yes. I, I think maybe he's like absorbed some small piece of death and prematurely aged somehow, mm. <laughs> but I, I was shocked when I heard that, that he was in his mid-20s. It just doesn't seem possible. And he's still with us. I mean, he's, I think, yeah. in his, maybe in his 90s now. He's made the right move to castle his rook over to protect the, <laughs> protect his king, at least, at least for a while, to be sure. And we're glad that he's still around. <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of the aged, we are going to look uh, deep into the soul of somebody near the end of his life in Bergman's next film, Wild Strawberries, released in 1957. 
Professor Isaac Borg is an elderly, very successful physician who takes a long car ride with his daughter-in-law to his alma mater to receive an honorary degree. Passing through the village where he grew up, Isaac relives his memories of childhood and his lost love and experiences nightmares as well. All this, as well as passengers picked up along the way, forced the old man to confront who he was and reflect on the man he became. The first time I've seen Wild Strawberries was for this podcast, and I had one of the most amazing effects from watching it. Because this movie is giving you a lot of different things, a lot of different tones, a lot of um, uh, changes in scene, and a lot of changes in perspective. A lot of it for me did not make sense or fit together, but for the first time, I didn't mind at all. <laughs> I'm usually the kind of person who tries to examine these films and say, say what's a, oh, what could this be about? And there are things where I didn't understand but I didn't, not only did I not mind, I wanted to learn more. I wanted, it made me activate my head and made me want to just think about this concept as, as uh, the main character goes on his journey. Yeah, it's also a film that, like the last one, I appreciate more the more times I see it. And I think a nice entryway to thinking about it for me is to look at it as kind of an extremely deep version of A Christmas Carol because it is really about a man looking at his past and looking at his life in a way that offers no simple explanations but does offer these dream sequences and these rememberings to times past that are recreated that allows you to fill in the blanks as what kind of person is he and and why is he, what is he seeking why is he struggling at this point in his life to understand what he's all about and this was the first bergman film i saw mm -hmm. uh, oh wow it, and it would have been um Probably in the late 90s, I think. I, I saw it because I had seen the Woody Allen film Deconstructing Harry, which I liked quite a bit. And I learned that uh, uh, Woody Allen had basically taken the plot from Wild Strawberries and Woodied it up, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so given that I had liked Deconstructing so much, I went back and watched Wild Strawberries. And uh, it impacted me. I, I, I loved it from the first time I saw it. And just as a personal note, as you talked about, Brad, someone trying to work through uh, their, you know, regrets and feelings. And um, I'm someone who um, is sort of prone and had my own adventures with anxiety and depression and kind of dealt with that throughout my life. And seeing that and trying, someone trying to like, work through his faults and understand how other people see him. Um, even though I was only in my mid twenties when I saw it, and this is very much about an older man, it really, it's basic humanity, like just hit me at my core. I also heard um, Leonard Cohen's waiting for the miracle around the same mm -hmm. time. And that's all, that's a similar thing of someone waiting for basically grace to come or, or understanding to come. And, What's great about this film, and perhaps a little bit uncharacteristic for Bergman, is he doesn't shy away from that, but it's not as dark as his other films, and that there is the possibility of reconciliation. Yeah, 
this became one of my favorite Bergman films for that same reason. Be- Whereas other films and other films of Bergman's can be accused of that he has a message and he sort of ha- he sometimes can hammer home his interests you know in a very stigmata like way but this film just just really endeared me in how he would move across these feelings of depression, feelings of despair, feelings of like, these explorations of meaninglessness that have gone through all, so many of his other films. But then they would alternate with really heartfelt moments of pure sentiment. The movie has a big advantage in a Colossus lead performance by uh, Victor Sostrom, who as we discussed uh, when he was in a, one of our part one films, was Bergman's mentor, was the most important filmmaker in Sweden prior to Ingmar Bergman, worked all the way from uh, the silent era through the 50s, and as a director and an actor. And now, as an old man, he is able to say so much without speaking, just the look in his eyes he is he is such a natural actor someone we can inherently relate to and and be brought into his life especially because the character himself is kind of a cold fish he's a a, a guy who's estranged from his children and other people in his family, he has this armor of success and uh, all this outward intelligence and sophistication. But we get to the heart of every insecurity. And yes, the script is doing that. Bergman is doing that. But but most of all, this uh, lead performance is doing that. It's someone who has been hurt so much that they've retreated from life basically that in with withdrawal and isolation will be something that comes up in Bergman's films again but it's really the presentation here mainly in the performance uh, you mentioned Brad but there's more possibility of warmth here there's not going to be a lot of possibility of grace in the films we talk about this is maybe the one example where it is and it just stands out I think for that reason and it's such a beautiful balancing act of that depth of longing and that and that sentiment that you cited, Al, that it's really a neat trick. Again, this film is only about 90 minutes long, and it never loses its balance. It never loses its footing. And it's such a... I think I was really lucky that it was my entryway to Bergman. Well, you could look... And I'm glad you have that attitude, because the other way of looking at it is, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> um but getting back to Seastrom, I think of him as an all-timer. All-timer. Greatest ever performance in not just a Bergman movie. I, I don't even think it's close. There's a lot of great performances. He towers over them. But it, I'm rivaling it with the passion of Joan of Arcs. Renee Falconetti, that character. And for a, maybe a similar reason, because what i feel he delivers in a way no other bergman character has at least up to the point of the films i've seen is he understands the ability of an actor to express things on his face silently 
he's able to deliver volumes upon what he's thinking, what he's feeling, and he doesn't say a word. And it's it jumps out at you when you watch him, even when he's not doing much at all. It's also a very, very robust, multi-dimensional thing because he's not it's not even a matter where where he's tortured. There's moments where he feels these things. But he also has a knowing level of being aware that he's been uh, affected by these feelings. And even when he's in a dream sequence, he almost seems sometimes to be aware that he's in a dream. He has an intellectual appreciation of his emotional changes going on in this. All of this is reflective nearly wordlessly. There's a moment where he looks in a mirror where a character tells him to not look away. And his view is such an amazing combination of acknowledgement, sadness, regret, and then also a feeling of putting that in the perspective of this time of his life that is all out delivered by what Seastrom is doing. And he's doing this continually over and over throughout the film. Again, like I said, all-timer, one of the greatest performances I'd ever witnessed. So I'm also incredibly happy to have seen this film. It's notable, too, that so many of Bergman's films will have female protagonists, and that's not the case here. But you're seeing a lot of those, for lack of a better phrase, sensitive kind of feminine approach to character here run through, filter through Victor Sostrom. And it, it really works well. I mean, he was at the point in his life, I believe he passed away just three years after the, uh, the film. So he kind of knew where he was in his own life. And I think he was able to bring that experience and all his understanding and comfort at that stage in life, that place of reconciliation that he had re seemingly reached personally to the performance. And you're, you're so right. So much of that just comes through. Um, there's such a range. He, he gives us that that comfort, that fear. One of the dream sequences where I think it's one everyone's familiar with, where you're called in front of the class and you don't have the answers, mm -hmm. and you're you're d determined to be a failure, and you're realizing and looking at everyone judging you, and that's kind of what who he feels to be in his bones. He has that guilt of, I've failed people. I failed the people around me. And now trying to acknowledge that and move on. Which is ironic because his character is a uh, doctor and a professor. And so we can assume he would have found himself in real life on the opposite side of that dynamic. But I do want to talk about these, these dream sequences because they work so well, both uh, thematically and as these visually stunning sequences that let us know more about the characters than they might be willing to reveal in dialogue. So the opening sequence is this kind of nightmare, and it's done in this washed-out uh, white that we saw in the beginning of Sawdust and Tinsel. And it's used to just as strong effect here as he uh, is wandering a street with uh, clocks with no hands on them and eventually uh, sees a corpse with his own face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these dream sequences are, are astounding. There's this, Each one of them is, has just these fascinating concepts to, to, for people to uh, consider. And, but that's why I would like, another reason why I put this as just this absolutely superior work is 
it gives us the idea to consider them, not the idea that it's like, that it just, these are easy answers and, oh, this thing in the dream means this. Like in the scene that Peter was describing about the dream sequence where he's facing a class, several people in the class are people who he's just met during his road trip. And in fact, the person interrogating him is just a guy who had had an argument in the back seat mm-hmm. for, about, for about a 10 minute period. I think what I like about that, Al, is that's how dreams work, right? I mean, something you encounter during the day seeps seeps into your subconscious and, and comes up in a dream, perhaps. So that makes it feel to me like this is something that Bergman, as the writer, has experienced and is sharing with us. Apparently, Bergman is somebody who remembered his dreams uh, in detail, which not everyone can do. And I think another strength of the film is how... It portrays other people in your life, not just as themselves, but as what they represent in your life. So, Al, you mentioned this uh, character who they encounter along the street in a, uh, a car accident, and they take on basically a bickering couple into their car. And uh, this fellow is just very cruel to his wife in the reality of the film. Mm-hmm. And so he's transferred into this cruel taskmaster in the dream. Mm -hmm. And probably the most important other person that Isaac uh, has to deal with is his memories of his first love, who was his uh, cousin uh, played by B.B. Anderson. They uh, were courting, and she left him for his brother. This traumatized him in such a deep way that even though he's had a marriage, although we're given the indication that it was not a very happy marriage, uh, he still remembers this person from his past so much to the extent that when they pick up this group of teenage hitchhikers, the girl in the group, a teenager who's flirting with uh, two boys that she's brought along, is also played by B.B. Anderson. It's a different character. She's not playing the character the same way that she plays isaac's lost love she actually is very charming as kind of this precocious teenager who's uh playing these two guys off each other yeah and also seems to have a real affection for isaac which reminds him of this happier time in his life one of the nice comedic notes of the movie is that these both characters that BB plays are called Sarah. Mm-hmm. And modern day Sarah has two uh, suitors kind of fighting over. And, and Bergman sets them up as an atheist and a, a priest candidate. Yes. And, and basically they're just there. It's kind of Bergman taking the piss out of himself about these two like guys arguing about the existence of God for the whole movie. And at one point they literally get in a, a fist fight about it and come back to the car and she's just like, well, boys, does God exist? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's really funny like to have enough self-consciousness to kind of like do present it as a, a, a joke as well. It, it really speaks well over exactly it. exactly it, it it speaks to the openness the open spirit of this movie that both acknowledges these themes that were have been important to him but then also is like it can be kind of silly to have these extended fights on these really heavy subjects and it's a scene i found straight out touching that 
Sorstrom's character does not go out and resent these people. He doesn't look at him in a rueful way, but instead he decides to go out of his way to take them out to lunch on this long, on this wonderfully evocative, like long pier that seems to like jut out in the distance, where he then regales them with his like favorite song about looking for faith, which everyone is receptive to. Mm-hmm. Well, it's what's important to Bergman in these moments, these very human moments. We saw in the Seventh Seal the picnic scene where they were eating wild strawberries. Mm-hmm. And as the title of this film, it's very indicative of, of, of what he values because the strawberries represent this kind of ideal community. Yeah, and I also want to add another case where the film is going to say, no, guys, look further, is that while acknowledging there are things in his life that he's missed out by being a doctor, by being an intellectual, it also shows the value of those things, too. There's a moment where he's being given an award for his years of service, which blew me away because it was played straight. Everyone is respectful. Their note that the occasion is something that it was good for him to pursue. It's not a flippant thing that you can just say, oh, but... Now he understands the things that, quote-unquote, really matter in all capital letters. But it's also a part of his life, as is this moment where he meets a garage mechanic, played by Max von Sydow, who, through his conversation, you find out that he had a sterling reputation as an exemplar that was held in incredible esteem by the members of the the town. As a side note, I just love the fact that Bergman has such a reliable stable of actors that he'll take his magnificent lead in his last film and give him kind of a bit role as a garage mechanic in this one who comes and goes. True, and for also for Max von Sydow to completely imbue that without like winking at the camera to say, hey, I nearly beat death in this last movie <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah, it, I really like, uh, to your point, Al, about like how... Victor Sostrom's character's viewed societally is one of the nice things about this movie is it contrasts the distance between the public perception of him and the private perception of him. And that's going to come up again in other Bergman films. From the outside, he appears successful at every level, while those close to him view him, or he thinks he at least that he's failed them. And I love that distance between the two. One of the more well-known things about this movie is that the character's initials are Isaac Bord or I.B. or Igmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. So it's very clearly like he's commenting on that's who he is. And this is at a point where he's reaching success in his career too. And he's never going to feel validated in that way. There's always going to be some in- internal investigation that he's going to put himself through. And if this film doesn't have enough levels, it also contrasts Seastrom's character to his own son, uh, played by Gunnar Bjornstram, who is basically estranged from his wife, who has been traveling uh, with Isaac all this time. And we see in a flashback that she's pregnant and that Gunnar's character does not want the baby. And so... We see kind of the hints of the coldness of the father reflected in the son. We've talked before about Bergman's fraught relationship with his father, and it's really interesting how he really hits home on this idea that our parents can very much shape who we are, whether we want them to or not. Well, that dynamic, yeah, Brett, I agree completely. That dynamic is so so fascinating how gunner 
Sorstrom's son is more of a um, distant human being than Sorstrom is. He's less able to deal with, like his wife. In a way, Sorstrom, for example, has reached a friendly accommodation with his mate. In fact, the way he deals with almost everyone is nowhere near as dismissive as Gunnar Bjornstrom says. Except I think we see the reflection of the father and the son. I mean, Ingrid Tulin playing uh, the daughter-in-law is very frank with him at some points during the ride about how she feels that he falls short in a lot of ways and sees that reflected in the estrangement of her own husband. And I think we do see hints of this darkness based on what's happened to Isaac in his past from losing his first love to his wife going on to cheating on him, things that close him off. And we're watching the process of him trying to tear down this wall that's been built. And then we see kind of a mini reflection of the wall in the sun. But because we're not looking at it from the sun's point of view, we're seeing uh, his actions as more of an outsider. That's a, that's a great point because I see the wall. I see the wall in the sun is higher. He's more distant and he's more dismissive of uh, the other person's concern that Sturstrom has been doing. And I also find it just really interesting how both that conversation that he has with his wife is in also in a car. Mm-hmm. But one way that could be cool to think about is that at that moment, Bjornstrand's ranting against the meaningless of existence. And why do you bring a child in this world when there's no meaning to get out of it? That's kind of the standard Bergman that everyone knows about. But also the idea of not having an unwanted child is actually the standard thing that Bergman was about in his early melodramas. <laughs> so it makes me think of like that in a weird way, Gunnar Bjornstrand is almost the birth of the ideas of the Bergman surrogate in, in, in uh, Sørstrom. Hmm. Like this is the extent, the extension of the person. Right. Well, and I, I think too, like the film comments on this because uh, at one point during the road trip, uh, Victor's character says to Ingrid Tulin's character, I'm already, I feel as though I've, I'm already dead. I'm so cold, I'm already dead. And she says, your son said the same thing. And Victor's character initially thinks that the son was talking about him, the father. And Tulin's correct, character corrects him and says, no, he was talking about himself, that he too feels like he's dead. There's just been so little warmth in these people's lives that they've cut themselves off. And what's sweet about it is that at the end of the film, Gunner's character and Ingrid Tulin's character do reconcile, and you get the sense that they're going to move forward. They're going to become parents. And I mean, they're not out of the woods, but they're in a better place than they were before. And there's hope. Mm-hmm. And notably, that scene is actually where you see them reconcile is shown from Sorstram's point of view, from Isaac's point of view. He's looking through a doorway, and like the rest of the movie, it's brilliantly depicted in just these fleeting moments of of gestures of affection as as the two go out to dinner together. There's a really nice use of an open door at the end of the Mm -hmm. film. You you mentioned briefly uh, Victor Isaac's relationship with his maid. They're kind of like an old bickering couple, basically, which is Mm -hmm. played for laughs at the beginning. 
And toward the end of the film, he asks her, shouldn't we be closer, basically? Like, as again, as an outgrowth of his, his new, the warmth he's found. And she kind of plays it off and said, no, we're, we're good the way we are. But she said, you know where I am, and I'll leave the door. She leaves the door open, mm-hmm. you know? So there's this idea that there may be more there between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just great. There's also, it's, it's a lot of open doors. If anyone listening has seen The Irishman, there's also use mm-hmm. of an open door there. So um, it's, yes. it's interesting to think what, what these uh, great directors are trying to say with that. And just exactly. as it began with a dream, it also ends with a dream, except this time, instead of being a nightmare, it's a dream where he sees his family and his past in a more idyllic setting uh, indicating that he's made peace to an extent with the past that he's been struggling so hard with. And so when he wakes up, uh, at the end of the film, he wakes up with this uh, feeling of uh, peacefulness and satisfaction. Yeah, it ends so beautifully with some measure of contentment and of actually almost pure grace. Since Sawdust and Tinsel... I feel like Bergman had been like putting in just an exemplary directorial effort where every particular detail of the images that we're seeing and the performance that we're witnessing can go and matter. But right up to the end point of Wild Strawberries, I feel that this is the one where he does to a openness and a movement on grace that, again, takes it to a level uh, above for me. Now, from the look at a person at the end of his life, He's going to take a look at things from the other end when he makes his film Brink of Life, which was released in 1958. Baby lights her and she takes a look around. She says that should us get her down. Nothing else for her to see. So then she calls on me. In this look at the different stages of childbirth, we meet Cecilia, who suffers a miscarriage early in her pregnancy. During her recovery, she shares a room with two other expected mothers. One is past her due date and giddy at the prospect of having a child, while a younger patient, who would be a single mother, struggles with the decision of whether or not she's prepared to carry her pregnancy to term. So at the beginning of our discussion, I mentioned that there would be some palate cleansers for Bergman, and I I think we've hit our first one. It's so surprising after the qualities of his last two films to watch a movie that, for me, had more the tone of a soap opera, just about zero production values. Everything seems to be taking place in these white rooms uh, in the hospital that are not shot, for me, in a way that's terribly interesting. But again, I keep coming back with this one. It just looks like television more than film. I feel like Wild Strawberries, and in so many ways, is such a kind of a summation, maybe? Like, in a way, like you're you're doing something that's so all-encompassing that you're actually spent. <laughs> and literally, and part of the budget is you spend so much money on gas for the road trip in Wild Strawberries <laughs> that you literally cannot build more than two rooms and one hallway in, in this thing. If you were to tell me that he was doing this film while moonlighting off the set of Wild Strawberries, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. It has the feel of a filmed play to me. There's not a lot of 
cinematic qualities to it. And also the characterization feels like it's very schematic. Like you can feel like the characters exist to make a point. And I think it's noticeable or notable, I should say, that he didn't write this because the strength of the film is really the camaraderie between the women, like the strength and support they show each other. And the film was written by Ula Isaacson, who Bergman will work with again in a film we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I, I struggle with this a little bit. It just it feels really heavy-handed at times. It digs into the f- female bonding and emotional support, but that's sort of drowned out by this calculated nihilism that really doesn't work too well. If you're really into Bergman, it, it's worth checking out, I would say. But it's not one of his strongest films, and it is one of the kind of footnotes to his career. Yeah, I'm going to not be as terrible as you. I think if you really enjoyed the other two movies we were talking about, you should really kind of avoid this. Because apart from the obvious lack of budget and the lack of creative choices through depicting these characters, the most false is the characters themselves. These characters are as clunky and obvious as the archetypes of Seven Seal feel natural and authentic. Like one character who's struggling with whether to carry the pregnancy for term, B.B. Anderson's character, there's a moment where she's by a desk and she literally lays out exactly what the stakes are in a, in, a, in a single shot, which might as well have had the NBC The More You Know rainbow appear over her head. Ingrid's uh, character who's taking the effects of the miscarriage is just inert. She really n- neither says anything notable does anything notable really changes except to realize that other people have may have it worse and the reason other people have it worse is and the reason us in the audience have it worse is eva dahlbeck's character who is i'm sorry she's the pregnant version of the of every police partner in a cop movie who is two days from retirement and is ready to set sail with his wife on the ship live forever as soon as he gets done with his shift Every moment she is so enthusiastic and so joyful about her impending childbirth. When her husband arrives, uh, played by Max von Sydow, he's just as giddy. And they're, they're talking about what kind of the nursery's all built. And, and if you've seen three movies, <laughs> you immediately, immediately come across that like, okay, that's not going to end <laughs> Every character uh, has exactly one personality trait. Yes. And the men in their life have half a personality <laughs> trait. Um, it's almost a shock when uh, when Von Saito arrives and is a decent human being because prior to this, every man in the film has been some kind of cold and different monster. Mm-hmm. And if it had something more interesting to say about that, I would have uh, forgiven it more. But we really are in soap opera territory. I don't really disagree with what you guys are saying. It's just a matter of degree for me. It didn't bother me as much. Like it, you, you can see where this film is going the minute it starts. It, it, early on in this film, one of the first scenes, you have a heavy-handed device of a doll falling to the floor, and then being yeah, placed right. on the pregnant, the woman who's having a miscarriage's uh, gurney, and you're just like, oh boy, <laughs> like if this is where we're starting, its schematics are laid bare, and like you know what's going to happen, but. I think there's enough there to consider in light of Bergman's other films that I was all right with it. It's small and it it's a minor success, I would say. 
of the three women, the the Ingrid Tulling character feels the most Bergman to me. The child she believes is miscarried because it's the product of an unloving marriage, and that's something that comes up many times in Bergman. I wish there was more to recommend here. We'll run into some failures later, but this to me wasn't one of them. Well, we can all agree that to one extent or another, this is minor Bergman. And we'll see whether his next film, The Magician, from 1958, corrects that or not. Vogler's Magnetic Health Theater travels from town to town, creating illusions and dispensing potions. Led by the charismatic but mute Albert Vogler, the village authorities at their next destination want to get to the bottom of whether the magician and his troupe have authentic supernatural powers or not. So they arrange a private performance that may be more than they bargained for. And now, for Ingmar Bergman's next trick, <laughs> he returns to the well of comedy. This is, to me, like the if some of the ideas of the, of the Seventh Seal and some of his commentaries on performance in his earlier films were treated as a dark comic lark. I don't know that I looked at it as a comedy through and through, like like some of his others, like uh, The Great Lessons in Love. But there's certainly both amusing and kind of strange moments, because it is dealing with kind of Bergman's other fascination of the period, which is the place of artists and actors and performers in the world at large. In this case, he's really going to delve into the relationship between performers and their audiences and their critics. We're going to run into two other movies later on in this podcast that is also going to focus on the relationship between performers and their critics. But this one is distinguished by being good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, we're going to talk about another trilogy later. I kind of think of the three you're talking about as the fuck you trilogy. Right. And, and, and this is sort of like his best fuck you film, like because of clearly taking aim at the audience or even kind of like the money men of the film industry. It's definitely criticizing in a sawdust and tinsel way. Definitely the sawdust side upon people, entertainers, not just entertainers, but specifically entertainers in a, in a field of art and performance that, that the rest of society finds disreputable. They're entertained, they're amused by what they see, but they don't respect it and don't respect the people performing them. But it also goes and looks at authentic authenticity from the inside out on the performance. It's so much about how much of the artifice internally is brought about by what the performers want to present to the world. Because on the one hand, they 
have this show that they're doing. On the other hand, they're they're kind of running a scam. Like they've got this uh, love potion that the old lady of the troop is pushing on people, and uh, some of the servants of the household they find themselves uh, staying in ends up uh, taking some love potion. And so this uh, servant girl, played by B.B. Anderson, and, and one of the younger members of the troop are able to have this uh, romance because the quote-unquote love potion removed their inhibitions but did it really right (laughs) And, and and it's playing with this idea of performance as illusion versus performance as reality because the characters who are judging this who are the the critics of the piece include a, a scientist and this kind of role would generally be given to a priest or a religious person in another movie but here it, it's kind of just the idea of what is art compared with science mm-hmm. and the scientist wants to study and get to the bottom of it and figure out is this real is this not real what does that mean mm-hmm. and the artists are kind of taken aback by this and they're like just let yourself be brought in and that's uh, interesting on a number of levels because it works for uh, characters talking to each other and it also works for a filmmaker talking to us the audience mm, exactly exactly there's a lot of great mirth i found from all the disguises that the troop carries the movie makes the point uh in in fact i believe there's a, a shot where you see the performers on one side and then the officials on the other that their outfits are almost as ridiculous and in one case more ridiculous <laughs> than those of the performers themselves and i feel like the the seven seals attempt of like taking archetypes is being done for com- more expressly comedic things because you have the a- example of the aristocracy of a of a pompous clueless fellow who seems to have a george washington wig and the example of um police and authority is hilarious this gremlin-like figure that looks nothing so much to me as the Swedish version of Wallace Shawn's uh, (laughs) inconceivable character from The Prince's Bride. And then Gunnar Bjornstrand as the scientist is super cool to me. There is a certain way where they're taking his concerns seriously because he is at heart a science scientist and he's a skeptic to the schemes of the performers who are to a certain extent scamming people with these uh, sort of charlatan games. Yeah, to, to the extent this film succeeds for me, it, it's when it goes to that kind of deeper level on the nature of belief and what you're into. Like, what are you willing to buy into for the purpose of art? and it, Or are you so blinded by uh, pursuit of quote-unquote truth that you're willing to tear down others? The film basically builds up to a confrontation between Max von Sydow's character and Gunnar Bjornstrand's character. Um, and just a quick note on, on von Sydow, I really liked his performance here. He It's a silent performance for about roughly the first half of the film, maybe. Mm-hmm. And even though he's buried beneath like some like a, a fake beard and he's kind of made up. Has a Prince Valiant hairstyle. You yeah, know? He, he really... His his feeling the feeling from his performance really comes through nonetheless, which I would attribute to just his eyes like are so mm-hmm. uh, amazing in this film. But so we've now set up kind of the the collision of of belief or art and science. And one of the big flaws in this film is that the last set piece where these two forces meet doesn't really work for me all that well because 
I'm not wanting to pick apart a plot, but there's one plot point in here that is just so egregious to me hmm. that it's ridiculous. And so basically the collision comes when Gunner's character believes that Von Saito's character has died and that he's now going to autopsy him. Well, unbeknownst to our good doctor, they've switched Von Saito's body with another dead body. And apparently our good doctor doesn't notice that he's autopsying an entirely different person, just slips right past him. And the film needs you to buy that. And what then happens is as he's autopsying this other person, Boncito actually kind of tortures him through supernatural tricks, basically, until he scares him. If it hadn't been so ridiculously set up, I would have appreciated it more, but I just couldn't get past that. Mm -hmm. I was able to buy that because the uh, troop is kind of presenting illusions all along from Von Sido being in costume and pretending to be mute to Ingrid Thulin uh, playing a boy, uh, supposedly, a squire to the magician, and mm -hmm. then it's revealed that she is the magician's wife. In fact, this clearly grown woman is being mistaken for a boy kind of sets the stage where I could believe that a corpse of another actor who Von Saito himself is so made up that he wouldn't even look like himself as a corpse. It took a little bit of a leap, but the mood of the film was such that it allowed me to do that. I agree with you completely, Peter. That, on a literal level, that's a really tough, that's really tough to swallow, especially since the person actually being the corpse has a... Uh, foot-long height distinction from Van Saito's <laughs> character is one of the many, many differences. And I should note, too, each character is supposedly a diet of natural cause. It's not like there's some like disfiguring injury or something. And the autopsy occurs like literally minutes after death. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I, I absolutely grant all of that. And I will say, though, that like Brad, I was carried along by the kind of tone of the film, which from the beginning, and I feel is really consistent, is of a kind of delirium of absurdity. Like when you see how the outfits of the officials are scarcely less ridiculous, for example. And, uh, you know, particular scene, which I think is key to like why I think the movie works so well, is they're holding a, a performance. And part of the performance is a hypnosis. And they hypnotize the uh, police captain's wife. And the police captain, like everyone else, does not respect these people. And she's just laughing. Oh, look, it's all part of this game. She's such a twit that they're able to hypnotize her pretty much instantly, fast enough so you don't even realize what's happening. She immediately starts spilling about what a god-awful person the police <laughs> captain is. It just, it just is the most hilariously brutally <laughs> dialogue. Um, uh, oh, he doesn't know how many of his kids are really his. Well, the, the ugly, stupid ones probably <laughs> is what the lines. And so when you get to the autopsy, I was already primed to go and say when – it starts by Monsanto's character telling his wife, all right, lock the door. We're going to use all of our tricks against him. And I was with, I was on board about like uh, you would in a, an entertaining horror movie. All right, what kind of tricks? And so the discrepancy on the autopsy size melted away. And then for me was delivered wonderfully. When mysterious things start happening, Bjornstrand's character calmly walks down to the entrance of the attic and then starts frantically trying to open it. So I am literally seeing the world's most overqualified performance of Shaggy from the Scooby-Doo <laughs> Scooby series. It's really amazing to, for me to witness that you're getting these 
spooky elements you would get out of a Lou Costello or Don Knotts haunted house story, yet they're being delivered at a level of performance five times higher than they than they even should be, and delivered actually have some quite spooky effects, like of a disembodied hand, uh, another hand reaching through a grate, and then uh, a moment where a character is moving through some clothes, and the clothes are like uh, are flapping in a way behind his head that was like. Okay, this is a pretty great effect. And then it it manages to undercut that at the moment of maximum horror effect. I think one of the reasons this works is because we're really identifying with the troop as underdogs yes. and completely annoyed by this fussy group of critics mm-hmm. who are doing nothing but trying to tear down this this uh, creative effort. So there's this great sense of comeuppance during that yes. whole autopsy. Huge. The, the ending, uh, basically the film ends with af- after the ruse is exposed, the troop thinks they're going to be arrested, basically, but instead there's a call from the king and they're asked to perform at the mm-hmm. royal court mm-hmm. <laughs> right. so, so they're literally like the scene is like them riding off into the sunset in triumph and like mm-hmm. our stooges back there slack jawed yes. right. yeah, which, exactly. which, which could be viewed as kind of Bergman reflecting on all the time he spent in the working class level of theater mm-hmm. and making smaller yeah. films for audiences and them not always being a success. And now we're at a period of a time where he's a worldwide sensation. And he might be trying to reflect that in mm-hmm. uh, the fate of his magician Yeah, character. yeah. And just, the, yeah, the way they continually put rides a two-by-four upon the pompous hypocrisy of of the upper class I, I is something that I find wonderful. Right, uh, from from the fact of one of the members of the troop after having just done this horrible scare is like, hey, hey, you got to admit that was pretty good. Can you give me some money? <laughs> <laughs> to the wife of one of the officials who is uh, who is all but ready to like just try to be seduced by the person. It's like, oh, who the hell are you? I've never seen you. To a guy ruefully saying, I liked you better when you were when I thought you were somebody completely different. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I love that sensibility of someone being aware of these kind of potentially heavy subjects and just be able to convert it to mirth and humor right down to the final image, which I gave a little bit of applause when I saw it at home because first off, the frantic soundtrack makes it sound like a Benny Hill sketch, but you're with it because it's such a maniacal change of fortune. I totally bought it. But as they're riding off into the sunset, it's not a sunset. It's a deserted old Swedish street that ends with a dusty lamp slowly swaying in the breeze, which is one of the most evocative images in the first dream sequence of uh, Wild Strawberries. <laughs> so even to the end, like, Bergen's going, ta-da! <laughs> so if this is a film where I, he was exploring the, the attitudes of performers and also looking at different kinds of archetypes that he was doing the Seventh Seal... Bergman returns to themes of religion and and some very, very heavy subject matter in his next film, The Virgin Spring, released in 1960. Now you say you're lonely You cry the long night through Well, you can cry Over you. 
based off a 13th century Swedish ballad about a well-off and pious family who sends their naive and somewhat spoiled daughter Karen off to the church some distance away. Separated from the servant girl accompanying her, Karen is attacked, raped, and murdered by herdsmen. The herdsmen, however, proceed to pick exactly the wrong household to seek shelter. Yes, any sense of uh, mirth from our our last discussion is going to have to end pretty immediately because uh, this is one of Bergman's bleakest films. Famously, the inspiration for uh, Wes Craven's horror film from the 70s, The Last House on the Left, it definitely sets this very period mood of these medieval times where one of the movie's most interesting qualities is the authenticity of the period and how that really gives uh, context to the brutality of what happens uh, to one of the characters, but also sets up some really interesting religious themes because you do have this very pious Christian household at a time when paganism was still a very popular and one might just as likely to be pagan as Christian during this time and place. And so you have another great Bergman actress, uh, Gunnel Lindblom, playing this uh, pregnant servant girl who prays to Odin and has this very tense relationship with Karen, who I think we're supposed to believe that they were good friends growing up, but because of their class differences, religious differences, and the paths of their life, they are now settling into kind of a servant-master relationship. I really like this film. I think I got more of an appreciation for watching it in the context of all the other films we're talking about, because it felt like a change of pace for Bergman. Uh, here. He's uh, again working with uh, Ula Isaacson, who wrote uh, Brink of Life, which we discussed earlier. Here is co written with Bergman. So there's this sense in this film I got of more showing and less telling. This to me is a far less talky film than his other ones have been. And I appreciated that that shift here because it, it's really what it is, as you mentioned, The Last House on the Left. This is a really sort of lean kind of mean spare film and unflinching in what it it shows with one exception I, I struggle with the end a bit but for the most part this is very well done um max von Sydow, again is very good he's given again given a lot of silent scenes to play i had noted how strong he was with that in the magician and i think he's equally strong here um this film isn't going to be for everybody i mean it does depict fairly graphically for the time a rape and murder Although, interestingly, per the bonus features on Criterion, that the actual fable this is based off of is more brutal in terms of what happens to the victim in that in the fable, she's actually beheaded Mm. as well as being raped and murdered. So that doesn't happen here. So it's interesting that there is some restraint shown, but it is nonetheless a brutal depiction. And we're left to consider what does the revenge that's going to be sought, what does that mean and where are we left in terms of the protagonist humanity. It's interesting that it's written by or co-written by the same person because a little bit of the similar problem to Brink of Life happens here for me. If Brink of Life had characters that were these 
OneNote messages in a contemporary situation, uh, Virgin Spring has these uh, a fabled structure, but it is uh, OneNote and sometimes less in the uh, mystical or uh, allegorical side of things. Like, for example, what lesson are we supposed to get out of the king and the queen? And the daughter is basically like the platonic ideal of a victim in a slasher movie. She's so chipper, so enthusiastic, and such a naive fawn to be let out to the slaughter in this film for me. What I liked about that is, like, yeah, she's sort of precocious, I guess, and kind of vain and oblivious to the world around her in some extent. But I like that they contrasted her with um, Gunnel Lindblom's character you mentioned earlier, Brad. I mean, this isn't subtle, but they are playing those, those two off them very well. You have basically... Gunnar character was brought into the family, but is not their biological child. Uh, she's become pregnant out of wedlock. She's now looked down on in in a Christian household as someone who's been spoiled, basically, right. who has lost her virtue. And there's a lot of talk about how Karin is still a virgin and will remain so until she's married. I like that they set that up and that the kind of befouled person is the one who believes in the old gods. And the pure person is represented here by Christianity and kind of what happens in the interaction of those two. Von Sito's character is the one who straddles those two worlds. And I think that when he does act out his vengeance and where the film goes from there is interesting. Although I, I'm still struggling a little bit with how that fits in with the rest of Bergman's work. But it, mm-hmm. it, I, I appreciate the, the lean uh, spare manner that that collision is presented here. Yeah, there is one aspect that I had a, a bit of a hard time buying, which is that the parents are treating their daughter as such the princess, as such uh, a treasure. It does seem strange that they would set her out on her own, basically into the woods with no kind of real protection. Um, I think the movie gets more interesting in the aftermath of the murder when Von Sido has to come to terms with what he's going to do about that, because it ties the film back into Bergman's obsession at this point in his life about the existence or non-existence of God. And so you have a scene where when he realizes what he has to do, in what might be, for me, the most striking scene of the film, he uh, basically wrestles with a small tree, you see him struggling to pull it out of the ground. It's a great visual metaphor for his struggle. And then as you see what he intends to do, and that in an unjust world where God has allowed this to happen to his daughter, he takes the act of vengeance, which in his form of belief would be denying God, would be against what God would want, but as a man who's been through this trauma now, that's going to be the instinct that wins out. Okay, well, part of it is that I'm maybe more vengeful than you guys, but I didn't see any issue with him murdering those people whatsoever. But you're not looking at it from a Christian point of view. And, re- and, and I'm not either. I'm not a Christian myself. But I think in the sense of how these characters view their actions, you cannot separate 
Von Sydow's character from his Christianity. Which is interesting you should say that, because I actually think he, of all people, is the most available to get himself distanced from his Christianity. The movie makes a point in the beginning that that's a brand new religion for him. He is trying to be a Christian. He's trying to do a new way. Mm -hmm. And I think... Of all the people in that kind of a world, someone who has a new, uh, who has this new religion based on forgiveness, and then finds out what happens to his daughter, he would be the most inclined to go, okay, that new stuff, all right, fuck that. I had this other system. I think we're going to try the old system. Well, well, see, but I think the key here is the degree of it, because there were three assailants, two of which I think we feel are definitely guilty, and one who is younger and who there's some question about. He kills all three of them. He kills the child. And that's essentially what breaks him. Like when he does that, he he now realizes that he has crossed a threshold. He, he's crossed the line. He's sinned, if you will. I think what the film's trying to say is that it's that moment that holds the possibility of growth for humanity, I think. And then from here, the film goes to the place that I struggle with the most, I think, because what essentially what happens is they, they go back to find the murdered daughter's body. Once they find that, Von Sato swears to build a church upon the site where she's been murdered as atonement for his sin of killing the child assailant. And at this point, when they pick up the murdered girl's body, a spring, the titular virgin spring, comes out of dry ground where she, where she had been killed. Um, thus seemingly indicating that there is a Christian God and that he's giving them the sign to move forward. Yeah, I think that element is probably something that Bergman felt necessary to translate from the original poem. It doesn't seem like Bergman would have put in something like that himself, Although, if we go back to the seventh seal and look at his willingness to depict uh, death as a character, you could see that he is interested in he is interested in kind of visual representations of religious ideas, and in this case, it's, I think it's a, an interesting and valuable one to discuss because it's basically the question of if God exists, why would God allow bad things to happen to good people? And it, it's kind of interesting that in a, uh, in a career full of these theological questions, it's really this film that is most interested in that question. Yeah. I was, I did not buy into his, actions over there at, at the end and, and also yeah with the message so you're going to build a build a church I'm just asking why what 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 good does that do uh, here's here's an idea how about you build a church right next to your armed posts so you don't have to have your virgin daughter riding for miles and miles in the woods that might be a better place to put it but you're asking what good does it do to build this church I think Ingmar Bergman is asking the exact same question. I think that's something he wants us to consider is for a man who has committed acts of revenge and murder, what does it mean for this man to then return to a safety of piousness and religiosity? My take is that it 
shows an actual miracle occurring because there's a stream coming in where there was no stream before. And in fact, said stream comes in from the depression of her body as she's lifted off the ground to almost make it, ironically, a virgin sacrifice to make this virgin spring. (laughs) And Peter, to your point, I do really like what your take that the thing that makes him where he goes too far is that he dispatches the child who is has shown to be really been conflicted upon what is ha- what has happened and, and fearful and so on. I guess the reason it didn't register for me was because it's done as him throwing the kid and it's not explicit that he strangles him or stabs him or other like it could have been that he just was wanted to keep him from escaping. And so that's why I guess it didn't register didn't register for me. But the idea that maybe that's the point where he goes, okay, the other two Fine, but this one is a little too far. Maybe a, a better way of appreciating uh, appreciating this one, which I just felt was like, unlike the Seventh Seal, it's like one of the mo- most unnecessary fables. <laughs> I think for me, I would have appreciated it a bit more if it had maybe just a note or two more of considering what it means for a vengeful man to turn to quote-unquote good because the film, I think, ends on a note of success of some kind, like a moment of release it's really the positive nature of that depiction that I struggle with in The Virgin Spring. Yeah, and it might be because I've been watching so much Bergman lately that I didn't read that ending as uh, so unambiguously positive. I couldn't get there based on what we're shown in this movie alone to the place that you got to. Well, the next place we're going to get to is the 1960 film The Devil's Eye. Per the Irish proverb, a woman's chastity is a sty in the devil's eye. The prince of darkness indeed has developed a sty thanks to the commitment of a young woman played by B.B. Anderson to remain a virgin until marriage. So Satan recruits the infamous Don Juan for a very special seduction. As we said in the beginning of this podcast, what's one of the most amazing things about Bergman is that he's still exploring on different things. He's not like saying, oh, the Seventh Seal is such a rousing success. Let's just keep making films like that. He's looking at all sorts of different films. In part one, we managed to see that he had a noir movie. He had a screwball comedy. He had a dog movie. <laughs> in in this episode, he has a hallmarked version of General Hospital in Brink of Life and two different kinds of fables. The Devil's Eye is Ingmar Bergman's porno movie premise. (laughs) This is something that Radley Metzger could have uh, uh, put together. What's the devil got to do? Got to ruin this lady's virtue, huh? Uh, Here's a scam to go and seduce it. And the beginning of the movie is fully following through on this madcap premise as you have these sets, which look like they're, um, uh, could be off the Batman TV series. As these excessively bewigged people are uh, reading a long scroll of the list of Don Juan's contacts. My my favorite piece of that set is we actually we have Satan himself like mm-hmm. in this movie, 
And Satan has a throne like chair with flames coming out of the top of it. Yeah. And it, it looks like, like the Santa seat at the mall, but just with like burners attached <laughs> right. to the top of it. Yes. And it, the fire yeah. uh, is outside the window of this clearly a set. And, and it's, it, it looks so like a back projection from out of a car in a 1940s film. Yeah. And, and that's kind of where I end up with this movie is this feels like a Bergman film from part one of our <laughs> podcast that somehow snuck into part two after he's reached an entire another level of filmmaking, he kind of just regresses into some of his early comedic cheating wives and husbands bits that uh, used to fascinate him yeah. back in the day. And it's fine. It's, it's inoffensive. There's nothing I particularly hated about watching this film, but it, it is just kind of a goof. And to the extent, I guess, that you're willing to go with it on that, it's okay. But I'm expecting more from Berkman at this Not point. Not even, really? You were even engaged with Pablo? Oh, oh, that was his little assistant, right? Yes. Uh, Who his has his, little, own, his, little his own seduction lips, plan. Yes, his little <laughs> lip-smacking assistant uh, <laughs> who looks nothing so much as if Tom Waits was playing Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this hideous, like... He's the kind of apparition where if he actually had horns on his head, he would look better. And the, the fact that there's a whole subplot, very, very, very subplot about him trying to seduce the um, uh, the mother of the um, main would-be victim, it's ridiculously goofy and not in a good way. This is a film of sort of two halves to me. It starts off as the goof you guys mentioned, then it, it sort of moves toward a more typical Bergman kind of consideration of God and the devil and this stuff. The earlier goofy year scenes kind of worked better for me. There's some of the ridiculous stuff we mentioned, and then it'll cut to a very dry humored Gunnar Bjornstrand, almost as like a Rod Serling type person who comments. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. yes, I forgot yeah. the I forgot the stupid Rocky Horror <laughs> slash Brewster McCloud element of this guy. Yeah, I that it made me laugh. I like I like Gunnar. Like he just he just looked like he knew that everything you just saw was goofy shit, and now he was going to talk about the goofy shit. Uh, uh, the movie is fair. The movie is absolutely fair. It's not under any you're not under any illusions. You're a achieving a some sort of insight about the devil, <laughs> yeah. about it. But that, but you're in for a an attempted romp. Yeah, right. And the the performances are very heightened. Jarl Kule, who uh, is probably most notable for his role in Smiles of a Summer Night, is doing his best uh, Stig and or Berger from the early Bergman <laughs> films uh, as Don Juan. And B.B. Anderson is playing up her uh, sauciness from Wild Strawberries to much less effect. Well, which is and, very weird because, right, she's meant to be this ideal person who's meant to be seduced, yet 
this is maybe even a comment that Bergman's trying to do. She is actually way more knowing than about like her like sexual draw and what what it effect it has on people than what Don Juan does. Right. There's an interesting uh, Clinton-esque definition of what is is. Yes. In the in the sense that she just goes ahead and starts making out with him, but remains very pure because she won't go all the way. So. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The purity angle is. Not quite accurate. And in fact, it's so inaccurate that I, again, I kind of think it's a little bit of it's the point. Well, I think where this film lost me is like, I was having an okay time with the goofy stuff. But in the second half, it seems to be wanting to talk about repression. But its point is sort of muddled here. It's talking about like how the BB character's mother is married to a priest, I believe. And she is someone who is presented as sickly and unable to enjoy life, basically, until she's seduced by uh, Al, your favorite character. And then she basically, <laughs> she's now been, like, found some sort of sexual freedom. And, and the film ends with her basically not not being clear if she's going to stay with her husband or not. Has she now been kind of found liberation to go her own route? And I think what the film is saying at one point is that her daughter is much more open about sexuality, is freer, and someone who is headed in the right direction. Um, But then at the same time, the film ends with her not being willing to admit her level of sexual experience with her husband-to-be, her fiancé, and then that makes the devil happy. And it's just sort of out of character with what she'd been doing before, and it's kind of this abrupt right turn as the film ends. And I view the film as on the whole unsuccessful because it doesn't nail the transition from goofy to drama. And it's funny that Bergman is better at the comedic side of this than he is at the serious side of it. Yeah. Like, I hate to hate to disabuse you, Peter, but uh, he was not my favorite character. How could he be my favorite character? when you have a mini me version of uncle fester <laughs> who, who po- literally are, is popping in from the bottom of the screen to cause even more mischief. And this little guy just keeps popping in every case. you I guess you're trying to feel too emphatic towards uh, Pablo. But leads to another weird aspect of the father figure of this, who is way, way more naive than B.B. Anderson. In fact, his approach on religion is if if like some of the characters in early movies had a straight up lobotomy. It's like, like the prospect of his wife might not be 100% faithful makes him go, oh, gee. Well, see, and that's where I thought the film was going to make a more serious comment about kind of the patriarchy sort of aspect of of that character. One other goofy aspect is there's, uh, I think what we were calling Chekhov's Christian Closet in the film, where there's like, I I can't recall the exact setup, but there's basically this closet where if you're able to trap a demon in it somehow. It was tied to the alcohol that he refuses to drink, and and, and Minnie Fester keeps goading him to do that. Yeah, so they they set up this closet early in the film, and then eventually he does trick one of the demons in it, and he locks him in there, and then he's just like basically so proud of himself that he's done this. He just sits there and looks at the closet all night. And yep. like, meanwhile, his 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 wife is enjoying herself down the hall. And, and yep. even that aspect yep. is kind of weird because they make a point of how he has great self restraint by not uh, by not taking the demon's temptation and and bursting in on his wife and checking up on her. The no, I trust my wife. I trust my wife. 
But then in the morning, when uh, his wife is nowhere to be found, he bursts in on them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so what was the point of that? Right, right, right. <laughs> He's not be able to put the dots together. And I feel what you're talking about, the ending, is also, it's it just gets muddled yeah. in a way. Like, you just well, you just can't have the devil be, quote, unquote, defeated. No, it has to be some sort of last-minute hijinks. And, like, and honestly, I, I took it as the way that, that, that the devil guy is... Uh, trying to do the opposite of sour grapes like saying oh no I, I won in this part see I won I won in other words the devil's rendered pathetic and I think this is what I, to the extent that this movie is aiming to be something more than a lark it's trying to do that it, like yeah. your, your comment on the patriarchy is is spot on I feel it's trying to look at the idea that all this stuff that guys are doing all this pretense that people put up whether it's religion or even the devil and his whole of his minions are all done because they don't understand women. And so the way that they can assert some value for themselves is how you can exploit them or use them or demean them or, or defile them in some way. And it's tied into how men build things for that purpose. And so part of the thing for sty is the word stymie. And that's that's, that's where it, which causes the sty. It's that they get stymied by B.B. Anderson, including at a moment where she literally says, Okay, go ahead. I can see you're a hurting person <laughs> for Don Juan. And Don Juan goes, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm hurt. I'm, it's just because I'm hurting inside. That's why I want to abuse you. <laughs> and okay, this is a lo- quite a bit a lot to take, even for me, allegorically. But it is not helped that in one of his worst examples of miscasting, Gerald Cool, who looks like the Swedish version of Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall is playing Don Juan. Now, I'm nothing against McDonald, but he's playing Don Juan, the biggest seducer in all history. And when every time he appears and goes, oh, here's Don Juan. No, he isn't. I immediately said those words every time someone says, oh, here's this great seducer. No, he isn't. That took a lot of the air out of whatever this film was doing for, for me. On the other hand, the guy playing uh, Pablo, that worked. That was <laughs> perfect, his cast. perfect casting. <laughs> uh, so right now, we're in a heck of exploratory period for Bergman's middle career in that it, we had like these really harsh and really explicitly religious fable subjects in Virgin Spring. And then we get to this lark with the devil's eye. And his next movie he's, is going to go in yet a different direction with Through a Glass Darkly, released in 1961. Bukowski was a jerk. Berryman was faster. He wrote like wet paper mache. But he went the Hemingway. With your wings and with maximum pain. We curl upon the author to explain. Yeah, well, I curl upon the author to explain. In this film, it's about a family whose daughter, Karen, has been institutionalized for schizophrenia. They meet at their island retreat, which uh, includes her concerned husband, her younger brother, and her distant father. While attempting to be on vacation, they try to bond and become closer. But when Karen starts having visions again, the relationships between the family are challenged in all new ways. This is the first movie of what's going to be considered a trilogy for Bergman. Sometimes it's just called the trilogy or the faith trilogy or the absence of God trilogy. And we open it with what might be 
Bergman's most beautiful film. It's the first film shot on his island home of Faro, which will be the location for a great many of his films moving forward. And for a lot of different uses, the, this island provides kind of a, uh, a window into uh, Bergman's psyche and a way to present his themes in a visually beautiful way. It is not just visually beautiful, but the feelings are so wonderfully evoked by the visual depictions of the landscape. The desolation of a shoreline, or the dilapidated pillars of a boat that's been abandoned, or even the curves of a wallpaper in an, uh, in an attic, just, are ha- for me, have the feelings pour right out from them. The first thing that jumps out at me about this one, too, is just its beauty, its visual beauty. It really is one of the most beautiful films I've seen. And from there, Through a Glass Darkly is, as we mentioned, the start of a trilogy. And here is the film that considers God, God's existence to be most likely. He himself, when he talked about writing the film, was initially writing it as though he had found... God's existence through the love people share with each other, which is uncharacteristically optimistic for him. And tellingly, as he went through the film, that certainty dimmed, and you can start to feel the doubt in this film. And I think this is an interesting starting point, because basically what we're going to see over the next two films is God's presence slowly diminish until it's gone. Here, it's really presented in two ways. One is through the visions of a schizophrenic person played by, uh, I believe they say she's schizophrenic, right? Is it? They actually do not say okay. it in the film, but uh, it's it's strongly implied, and every bit of criticism I've seen on it basically says that's what it is. Yeah, so Which, it's extra textual, but yeah. So I'm mentally ill in any case. Well, there's a reason why you don't have the psychologist from Psycho have a 10-minute <laughs> scene describing what, the, what this condition is, because... This is the case of where reduction enhances the movie. You see there's something wrong with her, something wrong with her that gets her to a hospital. But by not saying it's schizophrenia or any other ailment for that matter, you're left as a viewer to interpret, well, what is the thing that is drier? And it could very well be of a metaphysical nature that she's seeing these visions. I agree the film is stronger for that ambiguity, and it also allows for what I think is is the best performance we've seen from Harriet Anderson, yes, who uh, has been in Bergman films now for uh, longer than anybody save Gunner, but here uh, just really delivers uh, a powerhouse performance of so many levels because for a lot of the film she's very much struggling to establish a normalcy to come back Mm -hmm. to the folds of her family which has so much tension anyway because we're again dealing with a very uh, cold father figure played by Gunnar Bjornstram in what's I think a really interesting arc to this film in that he is an author and is able to look at his daughter's illness so 
passively that he's basically studying it as fodder for his book. Yeah, to jump back to what I was saying earlier, he's, he's one of the depictions of God, I think, in this film, and that he's basically using his daughter's illness for his own gain. Her struggle is presented with trying to deal with this illness every day. Meanwhile, we're told that he's often gone. He's not home very much. And so he's basically like abandoned them to for his own pursuits where you don't know when he's going to come back. And Harriet plays his daughter and then she has a younger brother. Um, the fourth person making up our family is Max von Sydow, who is Harriet's husband. Um, so you have Gunnar as the absent father who is, I think, malignant when he is around. And then you have Harriet's mental illness, which she believes allows her to see God in the walls of a dilapidated room in the house. She thinks God is in the wall and will come out. Notably the the attic. Yes. Mm. And one of the amazing things about Harriet Anderson's performance is that her most well-known role is probably Monica from Somewhere with Monica, which is very much about her sexuality. And there's an aspect of her performance here which draws on that because as she sort of slips down, it also implies that she seduces and sleeps with her brother. There's an incest angle to this, which is kind of another befalling of nature, befalling of God. And you really need Harriet Anderson to do two very different things there. She has to show you the mental decline and the emotional decline. But then you also recognize, hey, that's Harriet Anderson. And a teenage boy could be very easily seduced by someone like her. Though one would hope well, not her own brother. Well, but okay. but, but you, mm. the thing is, is that the thing that's, that's, there's an element to her that because she was, I, at least to me, because she was Monica, there's this element to her of seduction. Even if you're not ascribing it in this family situation, you bring that connotation to her as an actress. Because that incest angle is pretty subtle in the film, actually, like I think that the impression you have of her allows that to work at the subtle level, which it does. Mm, it's it, Yeah, that's a case where in that aspect it works a little too subtly. And I really like Harriet Anderson's performance partly because she has effectively muted her flirtatious sexual energy even when she's taunting her brother about the, the fact that he clearly has a porno magazine. I feel that like um, uh, even Dreams level Harriet Anderson would go, nah, that position's no good. Move the hand there. That's prime Harriet Anderson for me. And so I I was absolutely astounded by her performance because she was able to take that part but give it actual moments of both madness or what could be a sense of transcendence. When she's over in the attic and Bergman tellingly changes the light as she's swaying on the middle of the floor, it's not shown in a way of like, oh my God, it's a descent. But it's some sort of reaching some sort of striving for a particular kind of revelation so he's not damning the pursuit of like religious ecstasy i i don't feel in that scene as much as just exploring it and in a way like harry anderson's brilliant evocation of the confusion of her situation and what direction should go i feel is a great expression of i think a lot of people's ambiguity upon how far they would take their own religious fervor That ambiguity, though, is called into question a bit when we see the the conclusion that Harry Anderson's character reaches, which is a very interesting one, that God is a spider. And that is kind of the loose connective tissue 
between this film and the other two in the trilogy, because in, in all of them, this kind of spider analogy to God is made. Now, what exactly Bergman means by that is very open to interpretation, but uh, the fact that he's struggling with his faith at, at this point certainly makes that dark element interesting. And also, uh, when a helicopter comes in to take her back to the hospital at the end, she absolutely associates the helicopter with a spider. Mm -hmm. I really like that moment. It's delivered really wonderfully because of the attic. Just the way that the different shafts of light reflect upon the, the, the patterns of the wallpaper and the very, very slowly opening door. A really another great use of, a, of an opening door where... She's pointing, that's where God comes from. That really gets to me of the idea of when you feel something that there should be a bigger presence, but the presence is so inexplicable, so mysterious, and so skittery. Something that, like, if you feel, if you concentrate on it, it will disappear. That's where I feel the spider imagery really works nicely. Like, she feels that there's something in her, but it's, it's something that's so difficult to fit in her life. Uh, to me, I think generally spiders have kind of a malignant connotation. And I think in the, I don't remember what the exact line is, but I think she says something in the movie like, the spider came out and tried to... I violate her, yeah, yes. Violate is the word, yeah. I can, I can remember she said penetrate or violate, but the idea was is that she basically felt sexually threatened by this spider to the point where where she she's been uh, upset before but now she ha now she basically has an episode like a psych almost like a psychotic break and she needs to be sedated and hospitalized and it's this idea that uh, this search for meaning and and search for god like looking for that and finding what she finds that's the absence of good in the world that scene is followed up by a, a scene where once she's gone her brother goes to speak to the gunner character who He's been not estranged from, but they're very distant. And the the father talks to him a bit. And the film ends with him saying, Papa spoke to me. You can read that as like there is something there to speak to because I think this authority figure, father or God, like has, has reached out to this kid. But at the same time, it's such a hollow victory and that there's nothing to connect them. So I think w one of the great things about this movie, I think, is when you come, at least coming to a movie like this at this point, where you hear it's the first and the God's Silence trilogy, you kind of expect this polemic or haranguing of religion, but it's not that. It, it, it's much more a consideration of like, how did I get here to this point with my faith and what does it mean? Right, mm -hmm. Because it never forgets to be about the family. Right. And it's a really interesting dichotomy that on the one hand, we have a character comparing God to a spider, but we also have another character basically saying uh, maybe God is love. And that is kind of like a great way to set up this question of what God's place in our lives could be. And with each step in the trilogy, that's going to become more and more limited. But here it can, can encompass both the spider and love and really in a poetic way talk about different levels of faith 
Yeah, I, I really respond to the poetry of it. This is a film that has some powerful, powerful symbolism on there, and mostly done in the, in the landscape and how Karen relates to it. That boat is mm. just wonderful. From the shafts of life that come in through the occasional hole in the floorboards to the weird way that certain parts of the boats are still are kind of underwater to certain posts that are stuck out just to just the way you need to enter. Well, and what's great about that too is that not only is it visually stunning, but you know that's the setting. This dilapidated, wrecked, crashed, burned out boat is this the scene where the incestuous relationship is consummated. So you have this idea of that coupling representing the absolute nadir of yeah. The, well, the, it's yeah. it's simultaneously adrift and stuck. Yeah. It's really wonderful. It's both broken and almost upright, but not really. My God, he when he excavated that boat earlier in the in the tra- passage to India, he, he really <laughs> got he really got a number on this one. This is it's a great way where the images that are coming into your head are expressing that moment. Yeah, it's and, a prime example of of setting of, of environment used as psychology. Exactly, exactly. And if there's one thing I would think there's a bit of a detriment for me to this movie, it's that. Maybe the effectiveness of using the landscape for psychology makes up for the fact of the psychology being used for psychology. (laughs) Because to one of your points about subtlety, there's some moments where characters, even by Swedish standards, are way too muted. (laughs) Like a particular robo-trip where Max von Sydow says, Oh, you're taking my wife's uh, pain and um, uh, medical condition to use it for your own personal profit. I don't like that. And then they continue on their merry way as opposed to giving the father the much-needed thrashing he deserves. And by the way, it doesn't help that Max von Sydow's iconic presence makes it completely unbelievable to think that he's younger than Gunnar. They try to put some white streaks in Gunnar Bjornstrand's hair. It does not work for me. Yeah, I thought that scene was way more effective than Mm. you did. I thought that he really saw through this character at that moment and was taking him to task in a way that was understated because these aren't the kind of people who are going to get into uh, shouting matches. But at the same time, uh, the reproach was unmistakable. And I think it really hurt Gunner's character to realize that he's been seen that clearly, that that's what he's been doing. There's a nice earlier scene, I think, that that kind of points to what you're saying, Brad, is where... Uh, Gunner's character has come back from a trip of some kind and he presents the family with presents he's bought for them and then he leaves the scene and they open them and it's very clear that he doesn't really have a sense of who they are and hasn't gotten them gifts which are meaningful to them and while they're opening them and you're learning that he is in the house weeping like he knows he knows on some level that he's failed them similar to kind of what we were talking about during wild strawberries here is a father who who has failed his family but what through a glass darkly tells you is that there's not really going to be redemption here this time that you can't look beyond that it ends in a pretty dark place uh, actually, I had the opposite reaction on that because right, well, with the uh, beatific look by the son as Papa spoke to me, talking by a window, as he leaves it, you see a bright bit of sunlight just appear over his shoulder. 
that comes across like, uh, uh, wow, this communication that this kid has been so clearly wanting from his father, it's finally happened. Well, so see, I can't read that positivity in there. I, I, I understand why you could. I'm saying I can't. That doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I feel that it's much more bittersweet than that because, yes, he's made this connection, but he's also in a, a position where he's just been very psychologically damaged through this incestuous relationship with his sister, and he's at that age where he's going to be very confused by things anyway, so he's grasping on to this connection to his father, maybe read God, but it's it's grasping, and I, I think th it, it indicates that this is a straw that's very delicate. Mm, yep, yeah, my reactions are quite a bit different on there. I don't see any confusion on the unfortunately aptly named Minus's face whatsoever. It's a beatific note of triumphant happiness as as something he's wanted for the entire movie has has come by. He literally makes a whole play about it. Well, uh, yeah. I, I don't disagree that that look is there, but to me what the movie's saying is that that's a hollow victory, right. basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it becomes hollow when, if you really seriously look at Bjornstrand's father character, he's a bastard. <laughs> Just the fact of even thinking of putting up such a book removes a lot of sympathy out from him. And um, ultimately for me, what makes this movie a triumphant is it's all that's overcome by Harry and Anderson's titanically effective performance. And just the visual depiction matches her state of mind in, in a wonderful way. And, and I viewed its subtleties as very much its strength. And subtlety is certainly a tool that uh, Bergman will continue to use in his next film, Winter Light, released in 1963. Pastor Thomas Erickson conducts services in a mostly empty church and finds struggles with his own faith leave him ill-prepared to help a suicidal parishioner who questions whether life can have meaning in a world with nuclear weapons. Yeah, so I'm a little ironically agnostic towards this whole idea of the trilogy thing. It's the uh, uh, it seems like people are too willing to jump on, for example, the fact that an ice cream cone shows up in three movies to say, oh, see, see, this is a trilogy. But this does share one particular thing incredibly in common with Through a Glass Darkly, is the cinematic expression of the places these people are in and how it reflects their inner feelings is just as deeply felt, maybe even more so than in Through a Glass Darkly. In terms of sheer, the visual pleasures of the imagery coming into your eyeball, these are two of the all-time greats. Yeah, it's kind of a shame that we haven't just been talking about Bergman cinematographer Sven Nyquist throughout the entire discussion, because we could. We could just talk about what a masterful job he does in visualizing all these ideas. We did talk about the beauty of Through a Glass Darkly, 
But here the cinematography fits the mood just so perfectly. The whiteness of winter becomes its own character from the uh, claustrophobic insides of, of the church and the schoolhouse to just the dreariness of the snow-covered uh, outdoors. The environment is again depicting the psychology of our main character and damn, that is some psychology that Gunnar Bjornstram delivers in this role. I adore this film. For me, this is my favorite of the films we'll be discussing today. Part of that is for Bjornstram's performance. Uh, he is also my favorite of the Bergman crew that we see in so many of these films. He's often a pompous sardonic and comedic presence. Now, minus the comedic element, he's doing that here, but with such depth, I would compare his role here to what Victor Seastrom does in Wild Strawberries in the sense that you see everything on his face. There's a lot of dialogue from other characters, but he is a character that, with, with certain exceptions, when he really gets going, is going to communicate a lot non-verbally. And in the lineup of tortured and cold father figures, in this case the father of a flock, clergyman who uh, often come off badly, in Bergman, we're going to look deeper into that than Bergman has ever done before or since. Yeah, the winter light is a harsh and cold one, and in many ways this is a harsh and cold film. Although it's interesting to me that um, winter light is the title we know it by here in the U.S., but as I understand it, the original title or the original translation would have been The Communicants, mm -hmm. which uh, touches on the people taking communion at the church that Bjornstrand is residing over. But it also refers to communication between the people. And I think what's really interesting here is that this is really about two different sets of longing. We have the Ingrid Tulin character who is longing for a human connection with Gunnar Bjornstrand. It's notable that she uh, declares herself as an atheist and that she doesn't believe in God, but she does clearly believe in him and she wants to connect with him. Meanwhile, Gunnar is yearning for connection with God. He's having a crisis of faith and he needs to know that there's something there that he's trying to reach. And I think that those two different levels are really interesting to consider. And one of the takeaways, I think one of the lines from the movie that really cuts deep for me is that when Ingrid Tulane's character says to him, God is silent and God doesn't answer because God doesn't exist. It's that simple. For her, that is a comfort level of sorts, but she's still alone because she's trying to reach him. And I think this feeling of isolation and longing is really something that you can't escape and that we're really presented here in such a spare yet beautiful way that this film will stick with you for a long time. Well, now, the dynamic between these two is really interesting in a, in a number of ways, uh, both good and some things I think are not particularly good. Like, one of the things when I'm looking at this film is while... I actually find that the depiction of Ingrid's character as this 
absolutely wanting to do everything in her life to support Burenstrom's character is more of a fanciful endeavor than Burenstrom's search for a higher power. Why on earth is this happening? Am I seeing like a manic pixie sweet girl, the Bergman version? I don't quite get that. But on the other side of things, if you literally take that for granted, then why does she decide to say God doesn't exist to a person whose vocation is a priest? There's one level where I think it it fits because... She sees that his vocation is giving him all this anxiety and despair. Well, he's being and, tortured, yeah. Yeah and, she wa- yeah, and she wants to relieve it from him. But on the other hand, it's also kind of negating anything that he's, uh, what at that point is his entire existence. Are you really doing anyone any favors to say that the thing that they're, to directly tell them that the thing they're dedicating their lives to is a complete lie and it's been meaningless? That's not going to make anyone feel better. Well, she's beyond the point of trying to make him feel better. We're seeing the latest chapter in a long and tortured relationship between these two characters. They were maybe not a couple, but they had an affair, a uh, relationship at some point that went sour and and the movie gives us a lot of hints as to why that could be which is probably um Bjornstrand's uh, attempts to be devoted to the church to not want to be in a relationship that would make him look questionable mm-hmm. in the eyes of his uh parishioners now Ingrid's character as the the woman who will do anything for her love i i don't think is particularly a far leap because sometimes in love stories we do have characters who lose their own sense of individuality their own sense of purpose because all that's in their life is this love for somebody else which interestingly attaches itself to the last film because if the last film ends with the conclusion that god is love then here we have a character who's treating her love in a worshipful way, who puts that love before anything else in her life, even when the object of her love is silent, just as God is silent to his longing for some kind of reassurance that God exists. That's really, really nice. It actually answers a question that I had about the end of the film, where which has her kneeling and staring intently forward. But So her needs for prayer and her needs for some deliverance are absolutely felt, but what are they a need for? What is she praying for? And what kind of answer will she ever get from her prayers? Right. I mean, the film is not optimistic. A lot of people who have uh, seen the movie uh, First Reformed, which was one of the best movies of, of last year, might find that very familiar in the themes of Winter Light. It, it's practically a remake, and it's fascinating how the same themes in Winter Light are, are played out by Paul Schrader in a different and more uh, modern way. Whereas uh, First Reform deals with a character who is uh, despondent because of global warming and and where the environment is going. Here we have uh, Max von Sydow, who is uh, suicidal because of 
the nuclear threat, the height of the Cold War, and mm-hmm. China had just uh, gotten nuclear weapons. And he is responding in kind of the same way that some of the characters in, in Seventh Seal did to the plague. It's like, what is the point of going on when there's no guarantees when the future is so in question? It's so interesting how incapable Bjornstrom's priest is of being of comfort because when his one job is to comfort this man, all he can do is repeat his own insecurities and his own questions about life that he's supposed to help provide comfort for other humans, but he's so separate from other humans at this point. I'm just going to throw a really weird connection out there. It's it's kind of as if the, the main dynamic duo between the Seventh Seal had their positions of authority reversed. Because Max von Sydow is the actual true believer. Mm-hmm. Or he's the person who really, really wants to believe that there is some meaning. And Bjornstrom is the cynic. I've, although calling it cynic is way, way too reductive. Because in one way where I feel this movie is really triumphant... What Wild Strawberries did in its open nature of looking at a person's many different, con- often conflicting feelings about his about his purpose in life, Winterlight takes those and puts it in a big combustion of anxiety and despair internally through um, uh, Bjornstrand's performance. That's so right. What you were, how you're describing his when he's trying to reassure Max von Sydow's character, it's his own internal problems that he's expressing but where did it come from it came from part of it stems from him finally reading a letter which is a in a way it's kind of like a a a communicant wafer in reverse a nice white letter to contrast with an overhead shot of the white wafers that were delivered earlier during the mass this is the scene that struck most audiences at the time as so audacious because the the letter is presented and then we see a six-minute uncut shot of Ingrid Thulin saying to the camera the contents of the letter, looking directly at us like uh, Monica did in Summer of Monica, and the uh, accusation is there as well because she is uh, taking him to task for just how badly he has treated her, And at the same time, reaffirming that her love is more important than any of that. And I just want to add a little extra note where she questions his own faith because part of his mission was to serve his community. And yet she was suffering from a skin rash ailment that notably shows up with bandages on her hands. And so the idea of like that when he was asked to tend to the sick, he reacted with revulsion. So he also calls her out, not upon how badly he's treated her, but also how fall short of his own professed ideals he is. Baird, you mentioned that his job is to provide comfort. And I think one of the interesting things about this is that one of the ways the title can be read is that the harsh light of truth can be freeing or it can destroy, right? I mean, Max von Sydow's character is presented with harsh truth and he ends his life. The ending of this film, I think, is tantalizingly open-ended because they've said some awful things to each other, but they're still together and they're still going on. So is it really possible that reconciliation is coming 
is enlightenment coming? We really haven't been shown a lot of possibility for that, except that the show's not over for them, right? There's no one in attendance, really. They're really only there for themselves. There's a second church service, which begins, which is empty with aside from the two of them and one other person. And I really find it interesting that how you react to the truth is whether or not you go forward. It's wonderful how many parallels there are between this romantic relationship and the relationship between a pastor and his flock, because the movie opens very strikingly. It's it's not quite an empty church. There are a few more uh, parishioners there, but we see everybody kind of doing their own thing. Everybody's distracted by something. And whereas the ideal would be for everyone's attention in church to be focused to God, we see a very different result, including from the priest himself, who seems to be just going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And we find out in the course of the movie why that is. And you're right, Peter, the movie doesn't provide us with a, a, a simple answer because he chooses to continue what might be a charade, what might be something that he doesn't feel in his heart, but is something he feels he has to do to live up to his role which may be also how he feels about continuing his relationship uh, with Ingrid Thulin's yeah. character. Hmm. I have a slightly different take on that, and it's also something that I don't know necessarily works in the movie's favor. For one thing I want to point out about the parishioners is that for however hard we're talking about this movie is dealing with harsh themes, there's actually some levity in there, especially in these church scenes. I, it harkens back to something I really liked about the early Bergman films, is that even when he would do crowd scenes, he would like put in detail about what people were doing. And he gets the, the details are very, very charming, especially like the organist who manages to play a wonderful hymn while somehow holding up a stopwatch to see if uh, <laughs> how much longer the mass is going around. And a pious older lady who's trying to keep her... Uh, son or grandson from licking the pew <laughs> and, and it's very cool that even in the span of this 90 minute film Bergman is including these particular moments but time after time I noticed that there is these speechifying going on where I think the seventh seal had these like archetypes which let us connect to the humanity of the types this is a case where like it's about people that deliver explicit discussions on these themes of faith. How much times does she directly counteract his faith, for example, in a way that, like, very few real relationships would be like, okay, this thing that you're doing is bullshit. It's bullshit. But then, specifically about the ending, I mean, I take it the main reason that he decides to continue with a mass at an empty church is because there's a saintly hunchback loaned over from Notre Dame that comes over to give a very sympathetic speech to talk about, well, you might be suffering, but wasn't Jesus also uh, on the cross suffering to go and not being able to get an answer from his father? And so he basically gives a five-minute pep talk directly to the... So that's to me, comes across as a little bit more of a device, especially mm -hmm. the fact that it's also that, like, the two people who want to help him are wounded characters. I mean, I like that part, but also there's a speech at the end, a kind of a speech where the organist goes to Ingrid's character and says, 
You know, ever since his wife had died, he was so despondent, which does the little bit of the failure of exposition, the exposition fallacy. Why are you telling her something which, if she's been in the parish for so long, you would have either already known or you would have already told her? So it seems like that's just an effect that I feel like tinges on the film for me. None of that bothered me because Mm. uh, the church environment is one that invites sermonizing we are dealing That's with a, a, very a man whose job it is <laughs> a, a very to, fair point. to deliver sermons so everyone <laughs> kind of around him is taking him on that level okay um, cool <laughs> and, and i do want to talk a little bit about the cruelness of thulin's uh insisting on her atheism because i again i i do think this is some lashing out as a result of how hurt she is mm. and is was in no way her first choice of how to interact uh, with this man that she loved. She'd, she'd be far happier letting him be a man of faith and for her to be his wife. But this struggles he's having with his faith is not only putting in jeopardy his relationship between himself and God, but between himself and his fellow man, because he's becoming more distant, more cold, and more cruel, which is really not a good quality in a priest. You see, Mm. and and I don't read that as... She's certainly angry with him, but I see that even though what the people... They're being told what they don't want to hear, both Van Cito and Gunner, but... I think the intent is that knowledge can help free them nonetheless. If you see someone suffering under what is, in your view, a false uh, pretense, and you can help them get out of that, but you have to tell them something that they don't want to hear, that's okay. Like, that's the truth they need, That's and that's all right. And that, to me, is like part of what this film is saying, and that don't labor under the illusion of waiting for something that you can't see, like accept what you do have and go from there. You know, like that's sort of how I see it. Like, hmm, that's really interesting. Because I, I see, I, I look at it a, a little differently and it's more tinged on like that they're not expressing the things they think to be true so much as the things that they're truthfully feeling. Most particularly in the the interactions between him and Max von Sydow at the, at the second visit, which by the way is also cool how... He arrives late, but then also he he is passed out over, hunched over the desk with all the papers of the le- of the letter from Ingrid strewn about him. But at that moment, Bjornstrand is saying things that at, at the moment he may believe. But apart from that, he's also saying a lot of things that are just personal to him. He's saying God's just a spider. The better you just realize that there's no meaning, the the better off you'll be. And Spoiler alert, right? Mike Sponsano is not, in fact, better off. And he does not get past that because he gets the message that he fears. And it's not a message that allows him to continue. That's why it's important for Bjornstrand to see him in his dead body later in the film. Notably, by the way, it's really interesting how in a movie that has so much about silence and a very, very um, sparse soundtrack, except for those rapids... Those rapids are roaring. In fact, you can't even hear what the other people are talking mm-hmm. to each other because the roaring is so loud. And for me, especially with the context of this podcast, 
I find a really powerful connection between what that means and then the waters erupting from the girl's body being removed from the virgin spring. Fascinating. I really yeah. like what I really like the implication because mm-hmm. it's definitely a deliberate choice to make this as loud and powerful and onrushing as how effectively the rest of the movie deals in stillness. Right. And this is a case where the emotional honesty is something that I feel absolutely in this film. Even though emotional honesty did not necessarily lead to examinations of truth or thoughtful, nuanced considerations of your situation. That scene that Ingrid faces us in the camera, it has moments where she is in the right from a particular, from a particular stance, but also where she's, it's just a, a reservoir of pain lashing out. Mm-hmm. It is both. And also in a scene very notably held in a school, Bjornstrand gives as good as he gets by literally upending every moment of charity that she's, she's displayed towards him. And that, but that's also truthful, but also lashing out. The idea of like the emotional violence just combining with the real quest for trying to find meaning in the midst of the tumultuous undercurrents of suffering and despair that you feel, this is something that I feel the movie brings out r- really wonderfully. Yeah, I, I guess for me, like that, you're right to identify that that sequence in the school. I, I guess I read that does have an intent of cruelty, which I don't see as much in the in the reversal where she's reaching it because she really yes. wants to connect with him, and he just wants her away from him. Right. Yeah, she's a kinder mm-hmm. per- she's a kinder person than the person that Bjornstrand has become. Oh, I'm sorry, Brad. I just want to say in. On that note, maybe my favorite conceptual thing about Winterlight is after haranguing her by all these criticisms. It cuts to a shot of Bjornstrand, and he's looking at her, but she's off screen. So he's almost facing us and says, do you want to say anything else? Anything about religion or about myself? Go ahead. Look at me. I can take it. And it cuts then to Ingrid's character, who is a lady who has been wearing glasses throughout the movie. Thanks to like her crying, she's removed them. And her response is, I can barely see you at all. You just look fuzzy to me. And I thought that's just brilliant because on the one level, you have all this emotional nakedness. On the other, you have this failure to give a proper viewpoint. And it's making the contrast between those explicit in that shot. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's Berkman at the height of his powers. And so as the middle section of this trilogy... It makes one really interested in what's going to come next in the third. And that turns out to be The Silence, released in 1963. Silence. Two women, along with one's young son, travel through a war-torn, unnamed country and become some of the only guests at a luxury hotel. Their relationship is fraught as one sister has a serious illness, while the other's continual outdoor ventures leaves her son to wander the hotel alone. And we end up with a movie that could not be more different than Winter Light, or really anything that comes before it. Uh, The silence 
is more of a prediction of the direction Bergman is going to go rather than where he's been because uh, a certain level of surrealism and abstractness is going to be added to the filmmaking itself. We're denied a lot of information about the characters and and where they are. We know there's uh, some kind of war going on outside of this hotel, but we don't get to know anything about that. We know they're in a foreign country, but it's a, a language that nobody can speak, and we don't know where they are. And even their relationship with each other is very strange. I, I gather they are sisters, although at times they interact as if they're lovers. And the general tone of the film is one that's, uh, I think, interesting to note, in that every single interpersonal relationship between every single character seems somehow creepy and wrong. <laughs> I think that that's apt, because I, if we talked about kind of the presence of God declining through each of these three films i think we're now in like a post god world for bergman these characters aren't looking for god they're just existing in a world where there is no god and that god isn't really mentioned the silence is that there's these interpersonal conflicts there's hints of poverty and war outside their window and it's sort of all this like how do these people connect or is it possible in this world absent god's grace yeah, I'm going to just reject that whole premise of this trilogy outright here. This is It takes it to a nonsensical term in here. This is about as much the slot, the silence of God, as Casablanca is about the silence of God, about Citizen Kane is the silence of God, about how um, uh, Jackie Chan's Drunken Master 2 is about the silence of God. And nowhere is God referenced. Nowhere is a the idea of a creative force, a uh, reason behind meaning is never brought up on here. And in fact, even the term silence is not apt because there's, while there, uh, there is a couple of moments which are expertly directed where very little is actually said, the real proper title of this, in my opinion, should be if the original title of Winter Light was The Communicants, this is The Excommunicants. Hmm. It's b both because it's about the inability of people to say things that other people will understand, and it's also about casting out like excommunicating in the main relationship these two characters seemed almost drawn by a level of rejecting the thing that is the biggest expression of the other person broadly speaking the two sisters are like one's kind of sensual and emotional and the other's more cold and intellectual and never the twain shall meet is sort of the idea that of that in this godless world connection is very difficult and that's writ both large and small and i i disagree with you al because i think that the idea that everything you described as not being there is like that's the point and now this now this clash is what's filling that space where grace used to be or grace had hoped to be and that's kind of what this is saying um it's not my favorite of the of this trilogy but I think it's getting at some interesting things and as, and perhaps is most interesting, Brad, as you said, it's sort of a transition in his career at this point. Yeah, and, and I, it's also not my favorite. I, I 
vastly prefer the earlier two. We're getting into a period of, of Bergman where his style is going to change and bring some people along and, and leave other people behind. But I, I think that even as he gets more experimental in his filmmaking, uh, there's still these unforgettable images that he presents to us. I mean, the hotel itself is an amazing location that almost looks like a precursor to the Overlook in The Shining. Right, and, right. And, and then the these characters' relationships are just very uh, mysterious because the one who's sensual is also cold in her own way. She is absent in having any compassion for her sister who is ill and dying and her sister while being more presented as the uh, cerebral one would like nothing more than to have love in her life and uh, and the times when she tries to be affectionate towards uh, her nephew he seems like he can't be affectionate with anyone but his mother and so there's a lot of just strange relationship moments that happen. But unlike in a more traditional film, we don't get an adequate explanation or resolution to any of these relationships. Yeah, it, it leans heavily on at what it what isn't happening, right? right. On absence. And it kind of lets you fill in the blanks as you choose or don't choose to. Mm. I agree the the sister who's who's more emotional, she's capable of like carnal love, like physical love, but she doesn't have the ability to to love anyone at a deeper level than that. Gunnel Lindblom is playing the character, and there's a lot of emphasis on her body. There's nudity in the film. You see her son kind of washing her back in the bathtub. Her body's very much emphasized, whereas like the other sister's body is sick. So like those two things are the different pieces and i think what the film wants to do is saying that there's a lot of talk about language and the fact that the sick sister is translating language and giving it to the younger boy it's almost like she he's she's trying to the hope is that maybe he'll merge those two somehow as he grows older you see a lot of imagery here that will be repeated in a film we're going to talk about shortly so like this to me in a lot of ways it has some interesting stuff in it but it's really a precursor to more interesting things that will come yeah, later. Yeah, I take this, a lot of value of this film can be as an appetizer for Persona. It's really startling to me how the characters in this movie are colder than the setting of Winter Light. Hmm. Something that for all the pain expressed is incredibly emotionally enormous in terms of sympathy and empathy towards the towards the people in that film. As does uh, also in Through a Glass Darkly, especially in Karen's situation. Here I look at like if, if you can take the overlook, it's great you mentioned that, Brad, because if you take a look at how when Kubrick disappeared into outer space in 2001, since then his films kind of became more about abstraction and his involvement on humans in a kind of emphatic ground level way seemed to dissipate quite a bit. More like these are creatures to be examined. Mm -hmm. And it looks like this is that he's exploring these like psychological concepts and he's pulling out different parts of, of human personality and giving them their own individual characteristics. And then just seeing why they would be in conflict. 
the dichotomy between the two sisters is not exactly Freudian. Like where you can say, oh, because she's this one person is sensual, it's the she's the id and the other person's the ego. Because on the one side, the sensual sister leaves oftentimes, but there's one moment where she attends a theater production and she's actually very distressed by a couple who are uh, making love in the theater seats. And she's distressed about that. And then even when she finds a waiter who is... Our boy Burger comes back (laughs) as a barely articulate brute, basically. A Stanley Kowalski with even less uh, vocal skills. He's less a character than an object. Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. To give him some props, I mean, he lives up to the film's title in that he doesn't speak. And he's also, when we saw, when we last saw him, (laughs) he was a leading man, right? Like he was a center of a story, kind of a a good looking, kind of suave guy. Here he's sort of aged into a more of a character actor phase. And he has a sort of kind of stupid menace to him yes that that, it, that is played pretty well and he it's not a big part but i liked what he mm-hmm. did with it yeah but crucially not only does it appear she does not really get any enjoyment out of that out of the encounter but she seems to be still angst-ridden about what her sister is doing which is not what the id would be the id's not about being anxious about things that's why it's the id but on the other side i really like the other sister playing by ingrid Sulin. and i just to take a step back her performance in Winter Light is so absolutely eight levels above anything she's ever done that, like, it's weird how all the crystals seem to align for her in that film. She's not that great playing an archetype here, but I like what her character does because she is the more intellectual side, but she indulges in pursuits more than it seems the sensual person does. Hmm. Like, she's the one who tries um, an episode of uh, masturbation. She's guzzling down alcoholic beverages. She's smoking like a chimney, despite the fact that she appears to have an illness related to suffocation. So I like that dynamic because it's not that they're separate, completely separate. It's what they're getting from the negative impulses of the other in a way that connects this film. I think this film will be really nicely paired with um, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Hmm. Because the Freddie Quell, Lancaster Dobbs dynamic where they're clearly two different parts of humanity, but they're getting something between each other that is quite toxic in nature, I think is, is being brought out in this film. And then there's the third part of this triangle, which is the, the young boy, who is kind of caught between these two women and their uh, strange outlooks. And then also... Overlook, you could say. Indeed. <laughs> he's the one that explores the hotel. And runs into some of its own oddities. A an old porter who is again both friendly and creepy in kind of equal measures. He's trying to help. He seems like a good guy, but the camera just looks at him like just such an oddity. That's also how the camera treats a, a troop of dwarf actors to make um, 
Bergman's uh, contemporary Fellini proud uh, takes the uh, notion that just being a dwarf is weird. Yeah, it's notable that the dwarves have not just a series of uh, affection for the young lad, but they also decide to put him in a dress and had him as, as part of the party that they're having in the hotel room right they're sympathetic but it's also kind of the idea like well they're just children too look at their stature they're also Mm. the ones performing the show that the public intercourse is happening at right like that that's and i'm not quite sure like why other than to again as you said brad play up the their quote-unquote oddness yeah it's a look at this very very strangely empty hotel and if you're ever going to have the desire to quote um, uh, uh, a Tyler Perry version of this title, it could be, where can you find yourself a good man? <laughs> I think you put it really nicely, Brad. Men are an abstraction and an objectification in this one. There's no male figure that has any dimension in this. Well, I'll push back on that a little bit. I mean, I know that the Porter character isn't a big presence, but there is a nice moment where he connects with Ingrid Tuline's character about uh, over the music of Bach, I believe. I I wish there had been more of that in the movie where there's a gentleness underneath the quote-unquote odd exterior. Unfortunately, I think the film is content to stay at that higher level and not push too deep and just be sort of bemused or feel out of place amongst all these things. And I wish it had dealt delved more into the possibility of good or bad underneath it than that really yeah, does. Right, there's all this background on his foreignness. Is their inability to speak the same language prevents them from having a connection, even though he's very much trying to make a connection and part of the atmosphere of this is is also this war taking place just outside uh, the walls, which turns the place metaphorical as well and creates kind of a twinning with an upcoming film we'll be talking about, Shame. Yeah, and just in general, I'll say that Bergman's, by in his inherent focus on characters' interior lives, I think it's really hard for him to successfully set that against physical violence and war. We'll save delving into that for a little bit later, I think. But here, I think it's not too bad because it's really outside the window Mm. and he doesn't spend too much time on it. But it's just another thing that is sort of surface level in this movie. Well, yeah, yeah. And I think this is a really potentially fascinating combination between his outlook upon war and his outlook become of the, the things that men do that they place a lot of importance in, but turned out to be to be dumb and flailing, that he was exploring a little, but to pour effect in the devil's eye. So the Faith Trilogy is completed. One of his most acclaimed films, it's on its way. But, but we're going to have to take a little pit stop in between with All These Women, released in 1964. Speaking of dumb and flailing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, that's nice. Nice. 
This slapstick comedy takes place at a palatial estate of a world-famous cellist named Felix, known as much for his many lovers as for his music. Cornelius is a critic looking to write a tell-all book, but he himself gets entwined with Felix's bevy of beauties, and soon believes one may try to make the cellist's next performance his last. This would be entry two in the uh, Fuck You trilogy I mentioned <laughs> earlier, um, and it's bad. Uh, there's no sugarcoating it. This is an attempted farce, which is just filled with pure vitriol aimed at critics, and it's not funny. This would be a good time to remind everybody that Ingmar Bergman can do comedy. I think... His reputation is of such that if you mention him in comedy in the same sentence, a lot of people might wonder, well, I mean, he's pretty much the opposite, right? No, we've established he can be funny. And in part one, we talked about a movie called Lessons of Love, which is downright hysterical. Smiles of a Summer Night had great light comedy moments. It's something he can do. When we discuss this movie as a comedy... It's not that kind of comedy. It's him trying to explore comedy's lowest common denominator. This is stupid slapstick stuff at the most base level. Visually, it's interesting because it's his first film in color. Unfortunately, (laughs) the color is ugly. It's used in a purposeful way. I don't make... This film is bad in a very specific way. (laughs) It's not bad because he is being careless. It's bad in the same way Bob Dylan's uh, self-portrait album was so offensive to all the Dylan fans who loved himself... Who loved his stuff before that because it is denying everything in this case that that made Bergman great to begin with. If he's got an influence, if there's a style that you could imagine this movie is going for, it's Igmar Bergman trying to make a Jerry Lewis film. Yeah, the, the best way I can describe this movie is if you charged Chief Dreyfus with making a film about Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> like, because, like... <laughs> Because you have a bumbling fool at the heart of it, but it's clear that the person describing this bumbling fool hates this person to their very core. And it is not a good idea to build your film around a character which you, whom you so clearly loathe and spend the entire film insulting in a myriad of ways, diminishing with every opportunity. Yes, yes. Like, my take is this is one of the worst films ever made because I put it as, this is the George W. Bush of movies. The thing about this film is that immediately... It is so annoying at its attempted comedy. Just so obnoxiously stupid and goofy and ridiculous that you actually don't even notice how inept the elements are. (laughs) To what Brad said, it's his first color film that's got barely any color in it. It's a film called All These Women, and it actually has a lot of classic actresses that we know from Bergman's career, Harriet Anderson, B.B. Anderson, um, uh, Gertrude Frith, and so forth. 
And all these people who have acted in all these myriad different ways even have different tones in their acting styles. There's no distinction between any of it. Right. It's the characterization that Ingmar Bergen delivers is bimbo, 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 old bimbo, bimbo, bimbo with dog, and bimbo. So that's completely inept too. There is a fireworks scene that fails even in a geographical level, like because it appears to be held inside a house. <laughs> and yet the yet the staging is so poor that it's clearly done from just the top of the stage from where this house is being filmed. Yeah. Please watch uh, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday for a, for a better version e of that scene. Exactly. And just people literally doing one step away from having their mouths wide open with their eyes bulging, going, yeah. I, I, It's I'll one step away from using a chimpanzee making a farting noise. One of my favorite things I've heard a critic say is that Michael Phillips here in Chicago says, even when a movie is bad, usually the acting is the last thing that goes wrong. Like, it's usually not the actors that mess things up. Mm. That happens here. The lead performance here by Yarl Cool, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, whom we saw previously in The The Devil. proper pronunciation is Yarold Tool. Oh, yeah, okay. Our, whom we saw previously in The Devil's Eye. Here is our protagonist, I guess, who is so bumbling, and he's pitched at such a high high note from the very beginning that there's nowhere to go and it's a truly awful performance. It is an all-mugging performance. Uh, he stops his performance at points to just look at the camera and mug as if to say, am I mugging enough? Yeah. Igmar, yeah. should I... Is there any limit to the amount of mugging you want? And the answer is no. There is no limit. Right. Because underneath... The stupidity of what you're witnessing, and underneath the ineptness, behind the stupidity, you actually come to a place of hatred, anger, and contempt that Bergman is delivering towards every character in the movie, and delivering it to you, watching it, and delivering it to, most specifically, to critics. It's one thing for a movie to be inept, it's another movie for another to be stupid, but... For a movie where if you really look at it, moment by moment, he's going, fuck you. And that makes this movie the most damning part of it. There are two kind of points of comparison that I think embody that attitude in other films. Uh, one of which is Woody Allen's Stardust Memory. Also a basic hate letter to his fans that kind of derailed his uh, period of uh, most popularity and acclaim. Mm -hmm. But that's actually too good a film to really compare to this one. The one that I really find myself going back to when I watched this was the Gong Show movie. Oh, which yes. was not only starred, but directed by uh, Gong Show host Chuck Barris. And it's a combination of... R-rated bits that didn't make the show, and him basically wandering around angry, whining, and upset that he has fans, and lashing out and trying to get away from them, and just having this complete on-screen meltdown of this fuck you attitude you're you're talking about. And I think the fact that we're going to be talking about three Bergman films that traffic in this 
kind of speaks a little bit to his insecurity as a person, which he lets us in on in his better films, but this is kind of an ugly side of that insecurity. And and again, it's not something that can't be done well, as I think we established with The Magician, but uh, it, I've never seen it done as poorly uh, as in this case. I think that's a great point, and I guess we've praised other Bergman films that are driven by his emotion and his willingness to share those emotions with us. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we're going to accept the good, we have to take the bad with it, and this is definitely the bad. Yeah, it's one thing to be able to honestly deliver emotions, but... Don't take the gears shift of your of the vehicle driving it and then rip it off and then put a <laughs> put a brick on the accelerator and then put a brick upside your audience's head, which is what happens here. So Ingmar Bergman follows up this quote unquote 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 effort with another film that you guys listening in may have heard of, Persona, released in 1966. After a surreal prologue of images, the story proper begins, or does it, when a nurse assigned to care for an actress who has mysteriously stopped speaking. As they spend time together on an island villa and share their most intimate thoughts, they are drawn towards and repelled by each other in such a complex way that their very individuality may be called into question. Persona has such a rarefied status on a, uh, in terms of film that it makes me really, really wonder, should people see Persona as opposed to merely know of its existence as this crazy experiment? If you're interested in film, yeah, you should see Persona. Persona is one of those dividing lines between the way films used to be and the way they became. It's sort of a next step after uh, the French New Wave, but also something very particularly Bergman. And none of it's to say that it's going to be a enjoyable experience for everyone. I know that I find my own reaction to it to be mixed on the one hand there's this respect for the filmmaking and really awe for what's being accomplished and and the vision it's presenting but all that is also very distancing from getting involved as a viewer and it, it depends on what are you looking for out of a film if you're looking for anything conventional Persona is just going to be the opposite of that. But if you kind of view film as an adventure and, and a process of discovery, it's one of those things that you owe it to yourself to check out. 
Al, I think you're you're kind of asking is like, is this the book you just have on your shelf and pretend you read? <laughs> yes. Or or do you actually read it and enjoy it? And yeah, this is definitely one you want to spend time with. I love this movie. I'm not going to pretend I can explain it to you, but I really just enjoy its audacity, its energy. Its author here, Bergman, is finding a new way to express his themes and just a really thrilling and exciting way. So I'm I'm an unequivocal yes. Yeah, and, and for me, I put this as the evil wild strawberries. <laughs> because the experiments that Bergman does in that earlier film have this level of openness to interpretation, whereas this film comes across to me as a case of, oh, this butterfly is beautiful. Let's just see what makes this butterfly work. And you're seeing the dissected remnants of that and they're shifted around, and you can admire the technical skill involved forming this film in this way and making these innovations that break what we conventionally see from it. So my attitude of it is a lot like the attitude of the androids from Aliens, is that I uh, more respect its purity <laughs> as opposed to value it. Um, There's some ways where I actually think the film unequivocally fails. And one way that I feel that it significantly diminishes the film's effects. Part of the story hinges on the nurse character played by B.B. Anderson going on this mission slash adventure to take care of Liv Ullman's Elizabeth character. She is incredibly talkative. Part of the reason she's talkative is because Elizabeth is meant to be a big star. An incredibly charismatic figure that is well known amongst the public, and and BB Anderson's character Alma is smitten by her, and Liv Ullman does not deliver on that. She is a lovely-looking woman. She has a sense of mystery about her, but what she does not have in this film is a sense of like, oh my God, there's something epic about this woman. There's something incandescent about her that just draw would draw anyone in the public. And if that element was there, then B.B. Anderson's act- actions would be relatable. It would be also further a comment on celebrity and fame and, and popularity and also the idea of what you'd want to pull from this person. But since it's not there, B.B. Anderson's actions instead of being relatable, come across as crazy. This is a decent detriment to the film in that it does not take long before people start behaving in all sorts of aberrant ways that don't make sense unless you're realizing you are watching a dissected butterfly of a film. I think we need to take a step back and kind of look at the strategy of the film because... Making sense is not really the film's priority. We're dealing with an even more extreme look into surrealism and abstraction than we did in The Silence. Look at the opening sequence. You have, you start out with basically shot of of film uh, from a film camera, lit in a very evocative way. Right at the beginning, he's trying to establish a distance with the audience by emphasizing that this is not real life. This is something we're seeing on film. 
we're very quickly exposed to a lot of other images in very swift succession. And so we're being told right off the bat, we, we can't look at this film the way we would look at a standard film. So then when our characters are introduced... I think we're primed not to expect realism. Liv Ullman's character doesn't speak, and we never really truly know why. We're, we're given some hints. We see some war footage that makes us think perhaps she feels that speech is uh, useless in a, in a uh, terrible world, but th these are things up for interpretation. So... Again, I'm not saying that anybody in this acts in a relatable or realistic way, but I'm, I'm just not sure they're meant to be. For me, I think this opening prologue, which runs about six or seven minutes, I believe, the feeling I get from it is that these images feel very stream of consciousness. They're almost like thoughts running through someone's head. Amongst the images you see are a nail going through someone's hand as if being crucified. You see the slaughter sheep. Uh, you see uh, one frame of an erect penis. You see one frame of a woman's lips presented vertically, so they represent uh, resemble a vagina. Images of people in a morgue, which are beautifully filmed. So it's really all these things that almost seem like images running through someone's mind. And I think it's helpful to know that while writing this film, Bergman was confined to the hospital. He had a serious health issue. And to me, like those thoughts would be very natural for someone who's stuck somewhere, who's confined, who's isolated. And having these things run through your mind, seeing death around you in a hospital and, and wondering what's the state of your mm -hmm. own health. And I think that those images make sense to me when, you're, when I view them in that light. It's an interior representation of his interior life in other words and we see the same young boy from the silence is here and he again repeats a motion he had done in silence where he's he holds his hand up to the window in the case of silence and you see images move past it here it's just against like a distorted screen where you see either images of lee Bellman or bb anderson behind you they're blurred so you can't tell but the sense is that then, like, you see this hand up to the window, and then you go into the story. We're jumping out of Bergman's mind, if you will, into the story he's telling you. And you first meet uh, Lee Vellman in the hospital, where, as Brad said, she's gone mute. And she, she's an actress who has determined that she's in the middle of a performance on stage no longer going to speak. The rest of the movie is kind of digging into, well, what's driving that decision? What's, what's her mental state? and so on. And then, then you get into the interrelationship of the two people. But I think for me, one of the keys to this film is reading that first part as in Bergman's interior life. And then you jump to Elizabeth played by Lee Volman. And I'm reading the Lee Volman character here as one of our stand-ins for Bergman. And I will see a lot of him returning to the theme of artist and audience or artist and family around him in this film. You know, for someone who, like, was just saying that the film is a lot of different sensations for you and you don't have a lot of interpretations, you kind of, like, refuted yourself by putting in an incredibly valid and insightful look at what that prologue means. When we see, when we see the movie, it was an interesting question that we had as opposed to, like, is this the kind of film where there is a sort of 
that Bergman had a particular message or a, a general message, or was it his case that he had that this was all stream of consciousness, that this is all just things bouncing around their head? I suspect he did. I suspect that in Bergman's head, this all does make sense, but he doesn't want us to know how it makes sense. Mm-hmm. He's very clearly presenting barriers to our full understanding of what he's presenting to us. It's by design. And I think we can all come up with interpretive ideas and analysis and and look at each scene and and, and find things there. But we're never going to know exactly what he was going for because he just doesn't want us to know. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel that it is ultimately a me- particular message that was on his mind and certain elements he redirects it to go in a different direction, whether that interests him, but also expressly to kind of put a roadblock towards an easy interpretation. But ultimately, I think there is an overarching idea at work. And Peter, I think you, ironically speaking on the opening montage, you nailed a part of it. Because the details that you gave, they add a lot of resonance to what those opening images are. It's something which I don't really value on the film itself because I don't like films where you need more of a reference material for stuff outside of a director's experience. But in point of fact... If you know that he's in a, he was in a hospital where he conceived the idea of Persona and he had a serious ailment, then all the opening mo- scenes, montage, parts of the opening montage on corpses, on slabs, and on, on death, there's an additional power that's drawn from knowing it. The fact that the, his movie he made before this, The Silence, makes the child's appearance really powerful, as well as the theme of how, in the silence, how he's torn between two different females. Yeah, Jürgen Lindstrom is the actor, by yeah. the way. Now, this is not really delivered through his character, whatever characterization. Instead, to me, he kind of comes across as if um, uh, uh, Harry Potter is auditioning to be on a U2 album cover more than anything else. But the more you know about what he does or doesn't do in the silence, the more that that helps. The more you think of the three movies was the Spider God trilogy the more the big spider that shows up makes sense. Yeah, and I think for me, when I when I talk about like not trying to interpret this, like I always go back to, Al, I think you and I were at the same screening, the, the initial premiere here in Chicago of Upstream Color. Mm. And Shane Carruth was there and being interviewed by uh, Scott Tobias, a local critic here. During the intro to the movie, Scott Tobias said, going into upstream cover, he's like, don't get too hung up on trying to decode this or understand it. Just kind of go with what you feel about it. Mm-hmm. And I sort of have taken that with that lesson with me into movies like Upstream Color, like Persona, mm-hmm. and then sort of just try to figure it out after that but just trust my feeling for yeah, well, anyone who hasn't seen the film might be listening to this and and, and thinking it sounds like a, a real chore but but it's mm. not it, it, because even though it doesn't make complete narrative sense in a way that I think a lot of people would find satisfying as a story there is a lot of emotional resonance that happens We're not quite sure why these two women have this strange relationship that's developing, 
but the emotion of it is is definitely there, separating it, I think, from a more completely abstract film like uh, The Color of Pomegranates. Here, though, you have two great performances, and, and this is probably B.B. Anderson's best work as an actress I've seen. Uh, she has to run a complete gamut from this kind of hero worship uh, that you referred to earlier to anger when she feels betrayed by a, a letter she finds to this kind of identity confusion when she's saying words that might not even be her own. And I think Liv Ullman deserves all the credit in the world for interacting with her on these levels without having the ability to speak, without utilizing her voice as an acting tool. So you may not know exactly what you're seeing, but there's still elements of this film that are that are moving. That's what makes a film like this such a rich experience, because I think not only should you watch it, but you should probably watch it multiple times. And I feel like it's a rewarding experience to do so. I think the reason being is that, at least for me, if I go in with this idea that we're starting off with Bergman's interior life, and then we go into the relationship between these two people and kind of exploring various avenues, and there's so much room for interpretation here that I feel it's a real treat, basically. Um I agree with you about the idea of more interpretations because it separates things in itself far enough apart that depending on what your perspective, it's like the cinematic version of one of those optical illusion things where if you look at it in one angle, it's it's one thing. You look at it from another perspective, it looks like some, something else. Uh, uh, a sculpting in time of the uh, blind men and the elephant parable, perhaps. But what I don't see from what you guys are apparently registering is this kind of humanity. I don't feel it at all. While I feel Liv Ullman is effectively delivering reactions, which is incredibly difficult to do if you can't speak these things, but Anderson's character is just five degrees of someone uh, doing crazy, aberrant behavior. And Ullman at times is as a human presence, but at some other times she's presented as a total spectral presence. It's been commonly said in Persona that the idea that there might be just one person and these are just fragments of the personality, I do accept that, but in a negative way. <laughs> like, even if these two were combined, it would not be a human being that I would relate to, much less feel badly about. I mean, for example, there's a scene where she talks about an orgy that happens on the beach. And did you, were you moved by that scene? Moved isn't, isn't the word I'd use in that context. I think it's a really interesting scene because she tells basically this erotic story from the, the pages of Playboy about this sexual encounter. Yeah. And she's very worked up about it and talking about it in the most uh, flourishing uh, summer with Monica terms. Mm -hmm. And then later we see this letter that Elizabeth has written pretty much mocking this story that was told to her and referring to it as, oh, she talked about this orgy she was in. Mm -hmm. And that's that, that's an interesting contrast between how it's initially presented to us and then how it was received by the other person. Now, where all this becomes moving is uh, the anger that reading this letter elicits in okay. the B.B. Anderson character because this bond that they've built together is now in danger. 
and we sense the betrayal in this letter, and soon after, the film physically manifests that by uh, actually breaking and burning up in the projector, Mm -hmm. taking us once again out of the film, and reminding us that we are in the film. And then when we come back, we continue the story, but the relationship is, is has altered a bit. The center of gravity has altered. So just to step back a little bit, I, I think you asked, your initial question was, did I feel anything during the scene where BB's character, Alma, is describing the sexual encounter she had on the beach? And the answer for me to that is yes. And the reason is it, that it shows her extreme vulnerability in that moment. The fact that she's sharing something that she holds such shame about and such it has guarded so much that she's sharing it with Elizabeth, that to me is moving. And I, I think if we look, step back and look at their relationship, it's interesting. So we meet Elizabeth when she's in the hospital refusing to speak. Alma is her nurse. So in other words, a caregiver, someone who's meant to care for people and bring them back to health. They then leave the hospital so that she can care and go to like a seaside house, like a resort house, so that she can care for her in a private setting. And all this time, Elizabeth is not speaking. What fills that void of silence is Alma's speech. She has, I would say, 95% of the total lines in this movie. And she's filling the space that Elizabeth has left with her need to connect with Elizabeth. She's constantly putting herself out there and trying to reach her. And that in and of itself is moving to me. And now when you step back and look at Elizabeth, I care about her for two reasons. One is Liv Allman's performance, I think. I have to disagree with you. I think it's amazing. Bergman presents her face so beautifully in this movie, and there's so much rolling across it in a very subtle way that it's just amazing. And then the second reason is if I'm reading her as standing in for Bergman, I I see this as someone who has gone into isolation to the point of almost self-negation and that she's not willing to put herself out there like at all. And just basically almost has gone to self-loathing to the point of erasing herself almost or is trying to. And the fact that she's this actress or this artist makes her desirable to Alma because that's sort of, that's what this artist is, is someone who's elevated and held in esteem. Mm-hmm. And now that Alma's reaching out to her, that that's something that she has to have. And then to have it reach out to her and make herself vulnerable and then to have that vulnerability just stomped on and disregarded by Elizabeth, who is really just almost like studying her in the same way we talked about Gunner's author character in Through a Glass Darkly using another person. Nice. The artist using another person for their own means. Here she's studying her and who knows what she's going to do with it, Mm -hmm. but she's clearly not, she's clearly taking from Alma. And the point where uh, she puts this down in a letter to her husband and it's discovered by Alma, the trust breaks and literally the film, as Brad said, breaks at that point. It's just like seething with anger to the point where the film can't even hold together anymore. And uh, you go from this point now to the remainder of the film in which they'll have a different relationship and we're left to kind of figure out, well, what is this? Yeah, yeah. That's a lot lot of great stuff on that. And you're building off what you were saying earlier with regards to the idea on celebrity. Yeah, 
It ties in with what Bjornstrand's character in Through a Glass Darkly. He's taking even trauma that other people are expressing and using this for his own kind of commercial ends. And so if you follow that conceptually, that's what makes Alma frustrated. It's not that she cares about what Liv Ullman's character feels towards her so much as that she's frustrated that Liv Ullman will not engage her in the kind of communication that she is also willing and feels a desperate human need to express. In a way, that's kind of the ambiguity that Bergman feels about his audience. People who also feel deeply, but they have all their theories they want to put on him and they want to get answers from him that he's not going to provide. So does that make this the fourth fuck you movie? But <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll fuck you on a different level. Uh, it might yeah, or might not. Point, it might or might not help to uh, notice that Elizabeth's last name is Vogler, which is the same name as the magician in the magician. You're, dude, that's a great. <laughs> That's a great point. And you look at his attitude on uh, on the audience versus the magician in The Magician, but also look at what the magician is doing. The idea of the value you place on that is nowhere in it like of the mighty artist dictating his stuff to the audience either. Yeah. There's, there's a level of self-incrimination that's in there. And so I want to put up a theory on what is the beginning imagery. And not my theory, your theory, it's... The stuff floating around in Bergman's head. Stuff the spider got this. Stuff being a hospital that. The imagery from a, a movie he recently made. And so why does the film break? I think the reason that it breaks is similar to, of all things, something that happens in The Princess Bride. When there's a scene where people get, where a scene is especially dour and, oh, he never saw Buttercup again interrupted by someone going, no, the story shouldn't be like that. You've gone too far. And it starts over. Because notably, what happens right after the film breaks? You return to some of the imagery from the opening montage. Mm -hmm. And then for about a series of seconds, you see Liv Ullman's character, but it's out of focus until it snaps back into focus. So what we're seeing, what I think we're seeing there is the director, the creative force behind the movie we're watching going, okay, this is too far. Because the break happens when in the biggest physical violation, as B.B. Anderson leaves a, a piece of glass floating around, Liv Ullman steps on the glass and B.B. Anderson sees her and knows that Liv Ullman knows that she had left it. The, in other words, the intent of physical harm. And that's something that's too far and so basically we're seeing the cinematic version of Bergman crumpling up a piece of paper and going, no, 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 We've, we're not doing this. We have to start over. I think that's as good as an interpretation as anything. It definitely fits in with the idea of Bergman inserting himself, as you were mentioning earlier, Peter, and the idea of establishing film as an artifice so that we never forget that we're watching something that's false and different from reality. Then we come back, and it's in the second part, that this kind of weird merging of the characters start to take place, where Liv Ullman's uh, blind husband, uh, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, seemingly visits them and assumes that it's Bibi's character who is his wife and not his actual wife, mm -hmm. and makes love to Bibi's character, not to Liv's character. You have Bibi saying dialogue 
that would only make sense coming out of Liv Ullman's mouth. She doesn't speak, so it's left to Bibi to speak this dialogue. Yeah, and I, I feel like a lot of what the movie comes down to in this, the post-film breaking, yeah. and, yes. and now like the relationship is at once antagonistic and overlapping, right? Where it's overlapping in the way you describe Brad, but there's an antagonism between the two. And this feels very much like a description of like a codependent existence where one needs the other to live. And basically, I, I kind of read that as both the artist and audience because the, the main scene that I feel like in this segment of the film is there's a scene where BB's character Alma is screaming at Liv and then she holds out her arm and cuts her arm open with her nails and she begins to bleed and Liv puts her mouth on her arm and sucks her blood. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like basically what this relationship is between artist and audience is that the audience will need to see themselves in the artist. And when not, that's not there, there's, that's not going to happen, but, but the artist is going to take what you have and suck the life out of you Mm -hmm. for their, for their own means. Yes. Yes. It's, it's really, really cool for us to be able to look at this film in the context of the endeavor we're trying to undertake. Because this ties into a theme, an idea, that Bergman expressed in his very first movie, Crisis. There's a very despondent actor character in that film. And there's a moment where he shows some affection towards the family. And he says, the reason I am taken by this girl is because she feels things. And I can act like I feel things, but I don't know what it means to really feel those things. That's part of his first movie. And the way I look at it is if you look at that, and then you look at what Gunnar Bjornsson's character is doing in Through a Glass Darkly, you look at what so many people down the line, from Sawdust and Tinsel, how it's using performances. It's looking at the ambiguity and the discrepancy of trying to relate Can a performance be truthful to real human experience? Even the troubled history of his noir film was part of the reason it was scuttled was because Bergman felt that it was not truthful towards the immigrant experience to make a silly spy story out of it. So the way I look at the film, and and I'll be honest, I kind of think this is what Bergman's ultimate message is to what you said, Peter, about looking at yourself through the artist. That infamous scene with the sucking on the blood is part of a scene that happens twice. And it reminds me of the ending of another early Bergman film, Summer Interlude. In Summer Interlude, someone is reading a diary up from another person, notably. And the first time she's reading it, you superimpose that person's on the diary pages. But the next time she reads it, you see her own image. And this is like a great concept that the idea that the more you dwell on these things, you may think it's from other people, but what you're really getting is stuff from yourself. And in this scene in Persona, it's a shot from like someone looking at a picture and another hand pulls it away to look at the picture. And then you have Alma describing to Elizabeth in intricate and absolutely illogical detail upon what Liv Ullman's Elizabeth character feels of her ambiguity about being pregnant, about how she did not want the child, but the child was born anyway. And as you're watching, Elizabeth's face is fading in closer and closer and closer. And then you see that exact same scene again, 
but the motions of the hands are the same, but this time you're seeing it from B.B. Anderson's face. And then that's where she gets really, really angry. She gets really angry after she says that. She starts pounding her hands on the table. She cuts her wrist in a way that the blood sucking happens. And then it leads to the infamous shot of half the screen is B.B. Anderson's face, half the screen is Liv Volman's face. And what I'm seeing in there is exactly that sentiment from Summer Interlude. It's B.B. Anderson's point of view. And the first thing is what she thinks Liv Allman is doing. She, what she thinks the ambiguity is of her and she's projecting these feelings onto it. And it feels right. It feels right. It feels right. The second time, it's the reality. The second time, it's B.B. Anderson saying, you know what? This is just me saying this stuff which is literal. That's what she's doing. She's saying this stuff, which may or may not be true. And that's what makes that image of the half and half. That's why she goes crazy. It's because she realizes, oh my God, this stuff about these stars that have this thing that I think I can relate to, this is not right. It's not right. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. That leads to this reaction, this explosion, this violation, and leads to the violation of the image. Because what Bergman... To what you were saying, Brad, it's like, say, if this could be another one, fuck you movies. This is Bergman holding up a light to the audience to say, this is how inadequate it is for you guys to look at a star and see what you're doing is what you're feeling. Well, yeah, not only is it wrong for one side of it, it's wrong for the other. Basically, the Alma side needs to project, the Elizabeth side needs to reflect. Yes. And and like those two things end up merging into one kind of cyclical parasitic being Mm -hmm. sort of thing that goes on. And I sort of read the ending of this film as an indication of that cyclical nature because you see their relationship fail and then it sort of just ends with them leaving the house. You see BB as character leaving with all her baggage and getting on a bus and you don't really see Elizabeth's character. She just goes, but you do the minute Elizabeth characters leaves the frame, the film cuts again to show you uh, a camera swooping down and it shows her acting on a bed. So I think what the film is saying is like this kind of sick, performance and sick dance is just going to keep going on and on with these two yes or with people in general. yeah yeah that's 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 right that's right it's more whatever that image is it's more part of the machinery on Liv Ullman's case and as far as B.B. Anderson's character is concerned the way I look at it is she, Liv Ullman does not appear for like the last two or three minutes like it like B.B. it's just B.B. packing it's just B.B. quote-unquote cleaning out her baggage and can go home in a moment that I'm sorry because I'm a strange person echoes the same sentiments at the ending of Blazing Saddles. Maybe if the movie was a little longer, you could have had the Swedish version of, hey, the movie's over, you can go home. <laughs> well, well, I do feel like a little bit, just in terms of the image you see that ends the film, is the same image that begins it. It's that yeah. same firing of the projector you were talking about. So in other words, like we go out at the same way we came in, and I kind of just feel that goes into this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, and, and that, works, that works really beautifully in two levels, because it's not that it stops. It's that it stops because the two heated elements both get closer to start the spark and then pull away pull they pull away so i think it works beautifully to both say as part of the artist artistic collaboration process all these creative people get together and then you can get a spark but also the connection that we get when you see the image in the theater you feel a connection for for certain characters and you put your own feelings and sensations and thoughts to it but then that's just a moment and then it moves away each to their own direction Beyond the thematics of it, one of its great strengths 
is the look of it and what uh, Sven Nyquist brings here as well. And in fact, the original name for the film was uh, Cinematography. (laughs) And boy, do we see that in images that are unforgettable. You talked about the part where uh, half of the face is BB and half of the face is Liv, but then there are these constant framing of faces. And if anything is just true about this film, is it knows how to bring the most out of a human face. And so you have famous images that we've seen in posters and in documentaries where one character is looking forward, the other is looking sideways. Their faces are overlapping each other in different ways. These images speak to us, yes, in ways that we can attach to meaning in the film, but they're powerful on their own, too. And for me, that's kind of what's going to be lasting about Persona is more those kind of images. There's one fascinating aspect of that original title. That's because I kind of feel that the word encompasses what you're describing, but differently than cinematography. This was not, it was not, I don't feel it was done as like a a hat check to, hey, Sven, great job. I think he was trying to use the two parts of the word, cinematography, the act of filming. This is all about, in almost every sense of the word, this is what the act of filming is. In a way that might be, Francis Ford Coppola, when he's talked about um, uh, Apocalypse Now, he said, no, this is not a Vietnam movie. This is Vietnam. I think if Bergman was to make the statement of, this isn't a film, this is film. That's what I think may be one of the ultimate messages. We move on to Hour of the Wolf, released in 1968. Johan is a successful painter living on an island with his pregnant wife and some mysterious neighbors. Suffering from insomnia, he imagines being stalked by human monsters, often resembling vampires. Whether whether his neighbors are the embodiment of those monsters or not, they do seem to have an unhealthy connection to his lost love. And the tension between artist and the audience, it's a little more obvious in this film to the extent that you can plausibly say that this is one of Bergman's horror movies. For the first time since part one, he is playing with genre. And he'll he'll actually be doing that both in this film and the next one he's talking about because... He's still on a lot of the same themes he was exploring in Persona, but it just feels differently this way because he is looking at horror as kind of a visual medium in which to present this with. And 
it really works in the sense that a lot of the visuals here are just creepy as hell. When we say horror, I don't think it turns into any standard version of a horror film. It uses these kind of tropes, kind of like uh, the vampire scene in Persona, mm-hmm. uh, but applies them to, to Bergman's usual obsessions. For one thing, it's a dinner party that turns quite evil and nasty. <laughs> that was that was the best scene of the movie for me, actually. A lot of this film is about like kind of anxiety and humiliation, and uh, that dinner scene felt like someone who knew they went. He wouldn't have used this term at the time, but it felt like someone who knew what the experience of social anxiety is, and conveyed very well. It's almost like the the scene in Vertigo where they're kissing, but the camera uh, swirls around the couple mm-hmm. eventually way too fast to where it becomes disturbing. Mm-hmm. And this, the same thing happens here. Not, not in the swirling, but it just in the sense that the camera has its own agenda in how it presents the characters in the scene as they're trying to be polite, but the camera's revealing a little bit more than maybe they intend to. Yeah, brilliantly done. It's whip-panning from one part of the conversation to another, and then back, and then back again, and each time it whips back, the characters talking to the artist are a little nastier, their things they say are a little more cutting, and it gets when it cuts back to the artist... He's a little more sweaty and a little more distressed. An absolute masterful sequence. And even though this seems to be more in a traditional plot, it also has in common with Persona just the idea that we can't really trust what is real or, or what is not. Because it's established pretty soon that Max von Sydow's artist is imagining these creatures, has written them down, and has this image in his head. And then when we finally do see the people in the mansion reveal their true faces, they're the same faces that he himself had imagined. So what's supposed to be uh, reality and what's supposed to be something that he is just worked himself up into Mm -hmm. there's a scene early which shows how he gets worked up which is another one of my favorites sven really uh cuts the budget on the electricity bill on the lighting to (laughs) almost nothing as you just see like the lights of their eyes and the biggest sound on the thing on the soundtrack is max von saito's main character art his main artist character flipping the easel it sounds like a crack. And he says, look at this. This is the Spider-Man. Look at the, this, the grubbers. And, and each time his, his wife is trying to stoically take this in, it's something Liv Ullman does, was, does really not effectively in this film. But the feeling that that evokes of things getting really close to being out of control really delivers on the promise of the title which is meant to be the uh, hour before morning shows up where most people expire and the sense of uh, bad outcomes and negative possibilities are at their highest i think they specify it's 3 a.m that brings out this like dark night of the soul really effectively in in that easel scene but also in many many other shots yeah I, i think really for me the main draw of this film is how it looks too often, like the film felt like a kind of meandering list of Ingmar's hangups at <laughs> present. It's certainly not bad. It's worth seeing, but 
it really didn't cut nearly as deep as you thought it might, given the Dark Knight of the Soul quality yeah. you mentioned, Al. There are a few sequences, the dinner sequence we talked about. There's a fishing sequence, which I don't want to spoil here, that, that goes awry, that mm-hmm. I, I think is very well done. There's an extended like scene of sexual humiliation that's interesting. But it doesn't seem like a particularly deep film. And, and it also shifts characters' focus between um, Max von Sydow and Lee Ullman, which doesn't help because it is sort of digging partway into both of them then rather than deeper into one of them. It almost resembles a found footage film yes. at times <laughs> because we're, we're looking back through Liv Ullman's recalling of the situation. And so in addition to a character who might not have all his faculties, we also have a potential unreliable narrator. Yeah. And I do want to <laughs> dig a little deeper into that sexual humiliation uh, scene because I think it's uh, probably the best scene in the film. Okay. It involves Ingrid Thulin as a, an old love of Max von Sydow's from before his marriage, uh, who he clearly has not gotten over. And through some very strange mechanism of the plot, these island residents have uh, brought her back for a- an encounter. And we see that she's actually supposed to be with one of the uh, hosts, and he just openly says to Von Sido that it's killing him, that this is happening, that he is jealous. That And Von Sido, even though he's married, his motivations here are very unclear, or whether he even has any free will in this at all. When we finally get to the scene, there's a part where she appears to be dead. And then she laughs. And Von Sido has been made up in this garish, almost drag makeup with for lipstick, the occasion yeah. with lipstick. And the scene where he sees that their quote-unquote lovemaking session is a spectacle for this group of vampires is I think kind of the apex of the film's horror. They're, yeah, they're literally in a it's a great pan when you in the middle of that session you pan up and they're hanging like gargoyles off the side of this mm-hmm. this castle which by the way is I feel all a really effective location because it doesn't look inhabited. I feel like if Andre Tarkovsky decided to make a to like to make a horror movie about the artistic process this is going to be it cuz it's so desolate in a way that I find wonderfully captivating. It works in the same sense of disturbed feeling that I get out of something like a film like Touch of Evil. This place is not right. People should not be here. That feeling is delivered, I feel, wonderfully in in, in this in this movie. And if you want, you can also make this a trilogy with all these women and persona. Because once again, he's dealing with the let's just say at best ambiguous feelings about what an audience does to an artist or what they expect out mm-hmm. of an artist. There's moments where they clearly respect what this guy can offer, but they also hold him in like a way of disdain and a sense that they can exploit him, which also harkens back to the magician, ties into the magician as well. And it is, there's an element in the scene we were talking about of his personal life being like dissected or whatever too, which comes with not only someone of his 
a celebrity, but someone who has gone through how many marriages and mm-hmm. had like his private life be a big part of the narrative around his professional life. Yeah. And so you could see that like explanation. It's, yeah. it, it's just more the manner in which he approaches it. It's not that is interesting. It's just not presented in the most interesting manner in this mm-hmm. movie. Well, it's, it's so kind of isolated, right? It's like, yeah. that's part of the thing that, that, that like puts a lot of air out of it for me is when malevolent characters seem to basically appear and persecute him out of the ether, which is like, I don't know, maybe his island got a lot of stalkers back uh, back <laughs> in the day. Uh, but when you look at it in the movie, it's just, why is this guy here? Like, notably, there's a moment where he's painting and this incredibly obviously stand-in for a snooty film critic just just keeps walking along with him and asking him inappropriate questions and then when he goes oh you look angry i wonder why you look angry to which <laughs> i kind of think maybe bergman's a little bit of a wish fulfillment going on as Sido slaps him outside the head causes note to bleed goes shut up will you just shut up and, and bergman did in real life punch a critic once so. is that well, right oh i could believe that okay yeah, yeah well it's <laughs> Well, then it uh, makes the makes me want to take a look at the film again and look at it in his biographical context. <laughs> I sure hope that guy didn't come back to stab him in the uh, head with a raven's beak. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it on that particular level, like be, because it's looking at the same things that I feel Persona, part of the thing Persona was looking at, and definitely all the things that all these women were looking at. But it's using horror techniques to show this level of discomfort and anxiety. I think it's really, really effective on that. It does lose quite a bit in terms of making not just an unreliable narrator, but an unreliable narrator who's reading an unreliable diary of a guy who's on his last (laughs) mental edge, too. Which, by the way, looks like a Mead Elementary School notebook (laughs) with the big words, a big word that's written on the front, which might have been my diary. (laughs) I think the movie's strength is setting mood. It, it, It creates this mood of malevolence of uh, creepiness introduces some themes but not in a better way than we've seen them introduced in other films so for me this is the not quite great bergman but certainly something that one could appreciate watching Mm -hmm. and so from there he takes uh, a look on the wartime uh, experience and also it has effects on people in his film Shame from 1968. You made me cry when you said goodbye Ain't that a shame My tears fell like rain Jan and Ava are a married couple living on an island plagued by civil war. They try to live a normal life, but soon the war is at their doorsteps, and even the help they were getting from a colonel takes a dark turn. Ava tries to hold it together, as Jan is often on the verge of a panic attack. But they say war changes people, and it's definitely changing Jan. One imagines that if we went outside of the hotel in the silence, Mm. we might be in the same war that's occurring here in shame. Probably the most interesting element is not the war or anything they have to say about it, but the relationship between the couple, Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman, and kind of how war changes them. 
it's interesting, right off the bat, Liv Ullman, who was so meek and quiet in Hour of the Wolf, is here very much the dominant partner and is the one who, if, if they are going to survive and have any kind of future, it's because uh, Liv Ullman is being uh, proactive about how things need to be. And at the same time, we see Von Sydow basically just falling apart, which is something that's not too hard to understand when you consider that they are just a farm couple trying to live their lives in the middle of of this war that won't leave them alone. I really like Max's performance here. He's playing against type, basically. We haven't really seen him in this fragile state before. He's a very forceful presence. He's not here, and he actually plays it really well. Yeah, I think it's a weird irony that he is really effective playing a quite an unsympathetic and rather titanic weakling of a character. Once he gets some mild criticism from Liv Ullman's character about, you need to go get your coat, his response is to run into the house, not leave and whimper on a stairwell. Mm -hmm. I felt, well, there's a way that you can have a basic respect for someone as a human being, and you have failed. But he doesn't just fail for me. I feel he fails for Liv Ullman in the beginning as well. Just, I couldn't buy into this couple in that, like, what on earth does she see in this guy who's, when she's clearly the one carrying all of the load of being the most basic functions of humanity. There isn't even something like Hour of the Wolf, who has a flawed guy who behaves badly, but at least he is a great artist. At least there's something there to hold on to. And his berry grafting treatment is not nearly enough to compensate. Well, I think the strategy of the film is to have him start at such a weak level because they're going to want to contrast him to what he becomes by the end of the film. The key point in this is there's a lot of plot mechanisms about them being captured, about them being accused of being collaborators, and Gunnar Bjornstram is there as a as a colonel who um, uh, first appears to be friendly towards them, but clearly has this great power over them. And he uses that power to uh, blackmail Liv Ullman's character into uh, sex. And there comes a point when Max von Sydow can no longer not see what's happening. You you kind of wonder how he missed it already. But, But the plot brings us to the point where he sees that he has been reduced to this level and he changes certainly not to become a better person but he then pretty much becomes a product of war itself as he ends up shooting gunner's character after he refuses to provide the uh, information that would save him from his captors as uh, the other side now Mm -hmm. has the upper hand from that point on now Von Sydow's character has this coldness towards life and is no longer weak like he was, but has also completely lost his soul. Yeah, it is the, that's that moment rings a little false for me because it's a little too didactic of having the the one of the um, soldiers just give him the no, you need to do it. 
putting in the message on there a little too directly. And for me, I didn't quite find the engagement of like a of a of a spineless, weak-willed guy becoming a amoral, spineless, weak-willed guy. Since I kind of think that's very, very easy to um, uh, get somebody to behave in uh, an awful manner to, as once you turn a guy effectively into a beast. Mm-hmm. Into a dog, a cur, or someone who would like would do anything to survive. To me, it was already like seven eighths of the way there. I feel like the the film as it went on, like I could see what he was trying to do and basically demonstrate that the seed of the bigger war is here in what happens to Von Sido's character, and that this loss of uh, his spouse is what drives this bigger picture for men to create violence. That's not a bad idea in, in general, though. Bergman's interiority and focus on the inner self of his characters, it doesn't play well. It just inherently, those concerns seem small when you're setting them against like war-torn cities and being surrounded by dead bodies. Here he tries to tie that together and he's semi-successful more as the film goes on. And especially the last maybe third of it has some stun- truly stunning imagery in it. Like mm. the con- the conclusion of this film is as bleak as you can get. And the visuals are a big part of that. We've talked about his willingness to explore, and I think he's doing that again here, and credit yes. to him for doing that. It just doesn't really quite hit home here. He, he has such a distanced view of war, and even though it's ostensibly the subject matter he's dealing with here, he seems strangely uninterested in the ramifications of war beyond how it affects just the psychology of of one person. And and that's not an illegitimate way to make a film, but Al, you use word didactic, and I think this is the movie that kind of falls most into that trap. It's very much got its thesis statement, and it's going to get us to this thesis statement without too much by way of involving drama or even things that really make us think he just seems out of his comfort zone here oh well uh, a key example of how he's trying for things but without really putting it in a framework to have the things work well together is that yeah there's a amazingly evocative scene at the end of people in a boat with uh basically a whole train of dead soldiers just carrying themselves off in the distance it's a very powerful scene, but you're seeing scenes of desolation and death throughout the movie, including a shot with Liv Ullman caressing a dead child. So, we got it. <laughs> you don't need to metaphorically evoke how war is horrible when you've re- effectively, realistically shown it as horrible earlier in the movie. And his look on the banality of evil is... At times it's effective, at times it becomes almost like a Dr. Strangelove-like satire. For example, he makes a point that they're rounded up and then taken to a school. And so there's a whole bunch of torture that happens while all children's drawings are shown in the background. And then also there's some other moments which I think are just straight up meant to be comedic. How, for example, this couple just keeps bickering. Even when there's no, like, war present, there's a moment where they're digging in the field, and they're just complaining at each other in such a way that I'm like, 
wait, does this like the Lockhorns comic goes to Serbia? What the hell's going on here? And it combines right with Liv Ullman's character telling telling Max von Sydow, don't say I'm a suck up. And he literally goes, suck up, suck up, suck up, suck up. It's this kind of juvenile thing that I'm just, makes me wonder if there was some attempted mirth to come out from this situation. It's boiling down a larger conflict to the petty kind of like emotions that yeah. are demonstrated in that fight. And that's not a great comparison in my mind, if that's in fact what he's trying to do. That's how it felt to me. So Bergman is going to continue to leave things vague as in shame. We don't know anything about the two sides of the war or what country they're fighting for or over what. And we're in yet another unknown country in The Right, a film for Swedish television released in 1969. A troop of three theater actors are detained and have to testify before a judge in defense of their art. There is much interpersonal drama between the three, a married couple and the wife's lover, all of which is fair game for the repressed judge. I wish that judge was more repressed. He is uh, one of the most deranged examples of over-enthusiastic investigation, this side like out of an uh, Andrzej Jalowski movie. <laughs> yeah, I think we've reached what I'll call our fuck you finale for this uh, segment. Um, this is yet another uh, venomous anti-critic diatribe, and it works a bit better than all these women because pretty much anything would. Right. <laughs> but this isn't particularly good either. The judge you mentioned, Al, is painted as this ignorant, sweaty, grotesque figure. And look, I understand Bergman hates this guy, but I don't want to spend... This film is only 75 minutes, but mm -hmm. it feels long. It, it does. I don't want to spend time with any of these people. Yeah. They're, I, all, gro they're all grotesque ridiculous monsters that are humanity at its most inconsistent and out of control. I've just found that this kind of raw, angry Bergman isn't the Bergman I like. These diatribes just, it's just the equivalent of someone bitching at a bar, basically. <laughs> only, <laughs> only, only you're stuck next to them for an hour. Maybe he feels a little more free to do this because it's a, a television film, although apparently Swedish television at this uh, time had no censorship whatsoever because there's uh, a lot of nudity and uh, sexual activity and uh, adult content, but that's also kind of the point of it is uh, that the performance in question appears somewhat pornographic. This might sound interesting, but the way it's presented here, it's really not. None of the filmmaking that we expect from Bergman is really on display here. There is some overwrought acting from a number of our regular Bergman troupe, uh, Gunnar Bjornstram and Ingrid Thulin, and the return of uh, Anders Eck, who was so uh, memorable in Sawdust and Tinsel. Uh, but kind of drama for drama's sake without a point is what kills it here. 
Anders Eck is symbolic of what's wrong with every performance of this in this movie because what his wild gesticulations and gaping facial expressions would work really nicely as a circus clown who gets abused by everyone does not work well as an as a performer trying to um, uh, yell at these interrogator about uh, how he got away with murder. It's a, a phenomenally unsympathetic. And if it wasn't for the fact that the main investigator is worse than all of these people combined, <laughs> I would have no problem with locking them up under any pretense. Just get them out of the general public so they cannot pollute them with their BS is what is the attitude that I get out of like seeing these really repulsive people engage in continual a- and deliberately aberrant behavior. I think the best thing you can say about this film is that it's jaundiced at both sides, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you basically have a film that's pitting unlikable actors against a grotesque censor, is that really something you want to sign up for? Not me. Well, it's not like that kind of thing can't work, because it did work in The Magician. I saw this before seeing The Magician, so didn't even have that as a reference yeah. to make. But now having seen both, it's it's just like a before and after picture because The Magician is a film that's so full of life yes. and has a sly humor about it. Not a stupid humor like all these women. And characters that are something besides what they're supposed to symbolize so that we don't have to have scenes like where Ingrid Thulin is breaking down in clown makeup, which she is wearing for no good reason because when we finally see the performance, there is no clown in the piece. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a really nice and one of the many unanswered questions which work the opposite way of persona that you never ever want to contemplate the question again (laughs) as akin to like a scene where the uh, Anders X character apropos of nothing light the bed on fire and then uh, sit in the bed while smoking a cigarette as the flames get ever higher and higher and then cut to a scene where the burning bed or destroyed hotel is never mentioned again (laughs) what was that? (sighs) what a pretension for us to ask us what the artist has conceived. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not to the degree of all these women, but that toxic case of like, who are you to ask what this is? When you get to this particular right, it's so inconceivable that like the, the poor sap of a Lovecraft story, there our interrogator cannot handle the truth of this artistic depiction. <laughs> it's a very, very annoying and unpleasant sentiment. And it's unfortunate we have to conclude our discussion for this period of Bergman's on this film, because along the way, we've found several masterpieces and some just uh, remarkable films and experiments that Bergman has made. And we're not done, because we have masterpieces to come in part three of our Ingmar Bergman discussion. Exactly, exactly. Peter, I'm so glad you are willing to go and join us out for this second part of the epic journey. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed how we were discussion on these films because even in films that are arranged as unabashed classics of Bergman's filmography, I feel they still reward from going out and talking these things through. And I know I've picked up on a lot of interesting impressions on the films thanks to what we were able to talk to today. 
So we hope that you guys listening in also got some interesting facets out of what we were talking on Bergman. If you want to send us an email to bring up what are your favorite Bergman films from this period of his career or your favorite Bergman moments or what you think on our thoughts on Bergman, you can feel free to give the Directors Club an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found in multiple places across the internet, from iTunes and Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, Twitter at DC Podcast. We are currently posting Orson Welles and Bergman video essays on these films at our burgeoning YouTube channel that you can find by searching through Directors Club Podcast. And our episodes are archived, including part one of our discussion on the Bergman 101 at their site, directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you with another heaping dose of Bergman in the near future. Uh, welcome everyone. I'm Brad, and I'm Al. Wait, a <laughs> <laughs> no, leave one. leave that in. That's super persona. That's so, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and joining Wait, us. Let's do that again for real. <laughs> for real, for as you as me and me as you. Yeah, yeah, but without uh, my. <laughs> yeah. That's right. straight. That's yeah. by the way, that was a total mix up on my part. I was just <laughs> you were not trying to do a meta comment. No, 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 no. I was I wasn't trying to troll you. Yeah. Any, so